It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and we're going to kick off our fitful observance of Women's History Month tonight with Mercedes McCambridge in her series, Defense Attorney, an Agatha Christie mystery on suspense, Eve Arden as our Miss Brooks, and the story of the first eligible woman candidate for president, Belva Ann Lockwood, on the Cavalcade of America. Plus, Gunsmoke, Dragnet, and, during tax time, Jack Benny gets a visit from the IRS. So, put away any thoughts about what might have troubled you last week, it's over. And postpone, for a few hours anyway, any worries about the week to come. Instead, settle in, open your ears, and put your imagination to work here on your Sunday Night Oasis, The Big Broadcast. I'm not sure that a case involving a wealthy elderly widow is the best way to begin our observance of Women's History Month, but the Ivy Emerald Matter is the next episode in the series. It was broadcast on April 8, 1962, when $625,000 was the equivalent of about $5.8 million today on CBS's Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar. Hi, Johnny. This is Bob Baker at Surety Mutual Insurance Limited. Over there in dear old Boston, Mass? Yeah, that's right. How are you, Bake? It's been a long time. Yeah, I know. What's on your mind? And I hope it's something that'll earn me a nice fat commission. Well, as a matter of fact, there's a chance you uh, just might clean up on this one. Oh? You ever hear of the Ivy Emerald? Nope. Well, you should have. Happens to be one of the biggest chunks of that green stuff that was ever polished and put in a setting. Bake, the only green stuff I'm interested yeah, in. Yeah, I know, I know. The folding kind. That's right. Now, tell me, what's happened to this ivy emerald? What's your guess? And listen, Johnny. Yeah? Unless you can find out who stole it and get it back for us, and before it can be chopped up into little ones, I hope. How much? The insurance on it, I mean. $625,000. Wahoo. Yeah. You, uh... Want to come over here and talk about it? I'm on the way. The CBS Radio Network brings you Mandel Kramer in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to Surety Mutual Insurance Limited, Boston office. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the Ivy Emerald matter. Expense account item one is $6 cab fare to Bradley Field. Item two, $10.90 plane fare. After landing at Logan International, item three is two and a quarter for a taxi into Bob Baker's office on Boylston Street. Sit down, Johnny. I'll tell you what I know. Okay, Bake, go ahead. Well, first of all, 
I'm surprised you weren't familiar with that Ivy Emerald. It was all over the magazine, picture magazine, a couple of years ago. You know, mm-hmm. some big Middle Eastern potentate tried to pry it loose from our client. What's the name of the client, Vic? Mrs. Oscar B. Sterlingweight. Emily Sterlingweight, a rich old widow lady. Mm-hmm. And why the name Ivy Emerald? Because of the mounting. It's a brooch of solid gold in the shape of a, well, of a Boston Ivy. I see. Old Emily has a collection. Mostly of diamonds worth literally millions. Hmm. Only the emerald was taken, however. Taken from where, Bake? Her wall safe in her home. Where she put it last night after wearing it for some charity ball. Mm-hmm. Was it a nitro job? No. It was opened in the usual, proper fashion. By means of a dial. And her diamond collection was also in that safe? No, only paste copies of some of the diamond stuff for casual wear. Ordinarily, she keeps her important jewelry in a bank vault. But having worn this piece the night before... I see. In other words, whoever took it either knew beforehand the diamonds were only paste or simply recognized them as such, and that's the reason he didn't bother with them. Right. Well, the chances are then he's an expert. Right. Who else knows the combination of a safe? Well, she's the only one. You sure of that? Well, she swears to it. If she were to die without telling it to somebody else, the only way to get in would be to blast. Apparently somebody has. Hmm? So she isn't the only one who knows the combination. Oh... Yeah, I see what you mean. She's absolutely certain she's never told it to anyone. A good stethoscope will pick up the sound of the tumblers dropping, Dick. No, no, no. This, this box has an oil dampen movement, the quietest type there is. Made especially for by the Darlington Safe Company right here in Boston. Darlington? Well, maybe that's the answer. Oh? How do you mean? Um, let me have her address, will you, Bake? Well, sure. But what did you mean about maybe that's the answer? Do you know old man Darlington? No, never heard of him before, or his company. Well, I do know him. And if you think that Darlington, who personally codes all the boxes they put out, would be the only one with access to the records of the combinations that he sold, if you think that he could possibly... Take my boy. Let's wait and see. Item four is the usual 50-buck deposit on a rental car. And a few minutes later, I was in the Beacon Hill section of town block or so north of Commonwealth Avenue. Mrs. Emily Sterlingwaite's home was one of the fine, old, beautifully kept mansions that dot that exclusive, expensive residential area. The front door was opened for me by a uniformed butler. Since uh, Bob had phoned to her that I'd be along, she was waiting for me in the mahogany panel library. Because it's in here that I have the wall safe, Mr. Dollar, cleverly hidden behind a movable panel. Um... May I see it, Mrs. Sterlingwaite? Of course you may. It's right over here. Do you see I uh, pressed against the molding here? Mm-hmm. And here? Mm-hmm. And the panel slides away. And here is the safe. Oh, that is well hidden. Mr. Darlington himself supervised the installation of it a long time ago when he and I were quite young and he was, uh, was calling on me. Oh? But then, of course, I married Oscar. I see. Yes, Harry Darlington, dear, dear boy, was one of my most faithful admirers. Now, uh, the size of the dial here on the safe. Well, that's uh, because of my eyes. You have very attractive eyes, Mrs. Stillingway. Well, thank you, Mr. Dollar. You're very sweet. They've always been one of my better points, even as a young girl. The only trouble is I don't see very well. I never have. And that's, uh, well, that's why Harry, bless his understanding heart, made the dial so large for me. I don't usually tell that to people, though. I'll never mention it to a soul. Oh, thank you. Now, who else knows about the safe in here? 
since Oscar died, no one but myself, and of course, Hendricks. Hendricks? The butler. The butler? Hmm? But good heavens, Mr. Darla, you couldn't suspect him. Couldn't I? Well, you saw him. Yes, and I must admit that he doesn't look the type. What's more, he's been with me ever since I was, uh, well, uh, for nearly 40 years. Um, does he know the combination of it? No, no one does but me. Well, yet somehow, somebody... Mrs. Tillingwayne. Yes? Have any servants left you recently? Only a chauffeur. Oh, when? Oh, about a month ago. That was Arnold. Arnold Bixby, I believe. Why? Hmm. Well, this may be shooting in the dark, but do you by any chance have a picture of him? Why, yes, I, yes, I do have. The one that little Evelyn, my niece, took with the camera I gave her for Christmas. Should be right here in... Uh, this. Here it is. Good. Here, Mr. Dollar. Evelyn was quite taken with him. And he was such a very nice young... Oh. Oh. What is it, Mr. Dollar? I wonder. Yes? I don't recall that name. Arnold Bixby? Of course, it may have been a phony. A phony? But I'm sure I've run across this man somewhere in the course of one of my investigations. Oh, no, really. But he was so nice. And Mr. Dollar? Yes? How could he possibly have learned the combination of the safe? Would you like me to show you, Mrs. Stillingway? Would you like me to open it for you? You? You think you can? I think I can. But how? Harry Darlington absolutely guaranteed that no safe cracker could do it by listening to the combination or anything like that. No doubt he did, Mrs. Tillingway. Now, look. Yes? I'm going to leave the room. While I'm out, with those big double doors closed behind me, you open the safe. Will you do that, please? Very well, if you like. All right, then. I'll leave you alone. But uh, if the combination can't be heard, even with delicate instruments... As soon as I've closed this door, you go ahead. Now... I waited outside the door then for perhaps a minute, maybe less than a minute. Then... Mr. Dollar? It's open now, Mr. Dollar? Good. What? I said good. Oh. Now close it again and give the dial a couple of extra spins. Very well. There. It's closed and locked again. All right. And you really think you can open it now? I'm sure of it. Let's see now. Two right to 36. How did you know? Oh, this is a quiet one. Now, three left. Stop on 14. You're right. There we are. Now, one full turn past 14 to... Yes, there we are. Wide open. I don't understand. This oversized dial and the big numbers on it. Even so. There's a crack between those doors nearly a quarter of an inch wide, and you stood away from this, Mrs. Sterlingway, to full arm's length. Because of my poor eyesight. I could have seen how you turned this dial from nearly twice that distance. I see. So that chauffeur, or anybody else in this house, could have learned the combination just as easily as I did. Arnold Bixby, you said. Yes, but now he's gone, and I don't know where. And if he is the one, Mr. Dollar... Well, it's only a guess. But it happened last night. And if he was smart enough to have done what you did, with all the airplanes and things these days, oh dear, he could be far, far away. Or if he's real smart, he'll stick around long enough to have the emerald taken out of its mounting and broken up. That beautiful stone. 
carefully done by an expert oh. who would only do enough to destroy its identity without fracturing the main body of the gem. But you break up that lovely, lovely... Mrs. Tillingwen. Yes, ma'am. You have notified the police, haven't you? Yes, there's a fine, handsome young Sergeant Willoughby in charge. Good. And the first thing for me to do is... No. No, maybe I have a better idea. Let's see now. Three possibilities so far. As always, in a case of this kind, Mrs. Tillingwaite herself. Of course, there was nothing to indicate that she was the type to use a trick like that. Second, of course, was the ex-chauffeur whose picture was familiar to me, but only vaguely so. And from where? He might have to find out more about. And finally, there was Darlington. But then in the office of his little safe company, when I met Mrs. Stirlingwaite's dear, dear Harry Darlington, well, I'm afraid any suspicion of him promptly vanished into thin air. His honest distress couldn't possibly have been faked. Oh, just, just terrible, Mr. Dallas, just terrible. She always loved her jewels so much, you know, and especially the emerald. And to think that one of my own safes made with such loving care betrayed her, betrayed her trust in me, in spite of my devotion to her over all these years. Oh, dear, I, I fear that I shall never be able to face up to her again. Poor, dear, sweet little girl. I, I've let her down. She'll never forgive me. Now, uh, Mr. Darlington, uh, from, uh, from what she told me about you and, uh, and her feelings about you, I think she would like nothing better than to have you right there to comfort her. You, you really think so, Mr. Dollar? You think she'd be willing to see me again after, after this? I do indeed. Why don't you call her up and see? Yes. Yes, I shall. But first... If I can be of some small comfort to Emily... But uh, first, Mr. Darlington, I uh, I want you to take a good look at this picture. Uh, yes? A picture of this chauffeur she had. This man? Emily's chauffeur? You know him? Well, he was employed here in my plant for a while, almost a year ago. His name was Roger Gove. Roger Gove? Hmm. Hmm. Then it would appear that Arnold Bixby was merely an alias. Uh, what, sir? Oh, uh, nothing. I'm sorry. Go on, please. Well, he was only a truck driver and a loader, but I... Well, I, I just didn't like him. I'm a splendid judge of character, you see. Oh, I'm sure you are. Yes. And when I found him here in my private office one day, when I'd stepped out for a minute... Uh, think... Wait just one moment. That's safe. There in the corner. Yes, sir. Is that by any chance where you keep a record, uh, a record of combinations of other safes that you have built over the years? Yeah. Yes, yes, it is. Well, then that's where he got it. But uh, he could only have been in here a minute or so. For a man who knew what he was after, that could have been long enough. Thank you, Mr. Darlington. Thank you very much. But wait. Uh, yes? The safe was locked. When he was in here. You sure of that? I'm quite sure. Only quite sure. So maybe that's the way he found out. Maybe it was the same way I did. At any rate, I think he's our man. Well, now, Mr. Dollar... I'll see you later. As for what happened next, the way things just kind of fell into place, 
Well, you can call it coincidence if you like, but it wasn't. No, it was simply a matter of knowing which way to turn. In this case, it was to an old friend, an ex-convict, an ex-crook who knows more about the ways, the methods, the denizens of the underworld than anybody I've ever run across, simply because he was a part of that underworld at one time. Item five, ten cents for a phone call to Smokey Sullivan. Yeah? Smokey? Yeah? This is Johnny Dollar. Oh, Johnny. How are you, Johnny? I'm fine, Smokey, just fine. Tell me, um, you still an undercover man for the Boston Fire Department? Yeah. You know something, Johnny? What? Since they've been letting me help them out... They got practically no more set fires around here. Oh, good boy. Listen, Smokey. No, Johnny, you listen. Hmm? I've been trying to get you on the phone all day. I've been trying. Oh? Well, I'm right here in Boston. You mean uh, on account of the emerald? Yes. The Ivy Emerald. Yeah, well, that's why I've been trying to call you. Well, that's great, Smokey. I knew this hunch of mine would pay off. Yeah, I knew they'd get you in on it on account of the insurance. You know where it is? No, Johnny. But you know who took it? No. No? Well, well, then what about it, Smokey? Well, maybe I got a good lead for you. Sit tight, Smokey. I'll be right over. Okay, now, Smokey, you think you have a lead on the Ivy Emerald? Yeah. Well? Well, Johnny, about five blocks from here, there's a man who lives that used to be a fence back in Chicago. Uh-huh. Yeah, his name is Bildo. Fritz Bildo. He handled hot jewelry, hmm? Yeah, and he was also a diamond cutter, also. A gem cutter, hmm? Yeah. And has he been fencing stuff around here? Uh, no, Johnny, I don't know what he lives, John. Well, probably just waiting for a killing on something like this emerald. Yeah, all I know is he sits in a little shop in the back of his place making cheap jewels for the neighborhood kid. Just keeping his hand in, maybe, huh, Smokey? Yeah. Now, wait a minute. Look here, Smokey. Is this the man? Oh, no, Johnny. You don't... You don't know who that is? Who is it, Smokey? It's Manny Bree. Breed? Don't you know? And Manny's the best jewel heist this side of the state client. Then it's no wonder he'd go for the Ivy Emerald. And of course, it all ties up his job with the safe company under one name, his acting as chauffeur to Mr. Sterling Wade under another, and with this bildo here to break it up for him. Sure. You think Manny took it, Johnny? Well, don't you, Smokey? Where is he? I didn't even know he was here. All right, then. Our job is to find him. Tell me, what do you know about this gem cutter, this bildo? Oh, well, you see, it was on account of the pile of trash around Bildo's place that I started watching him. Pile of trash? Yeah, the way I seen it piled up before when somebody's maybe figuring to have an accidental fire to collect the insurance. Oh, yeah, yeah. Go on. Well, I, when I found out who it was for its bildo... Yes? Go on. So last night... I phoned my contact on the arson squad. That's Tommy Winkler. Oh, sure. I know Lieutenant Winkler. I know him very well. Go ahead, Smokey. So I told Tommy Winkler to better check up on Bildo. All right, so you told Lieutenant Winkler. What about the emerald? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah well, 
About um, 3 a.m. this morning, they took another look at Beldo's plates, and the car he had a light on. And there he was, in his shop at the back. Yeah. But when he seen me looking in the window, he kind of quick shoved something in the corner. Yeah, and he quick turns off the light. Smokey. And he, and, he, and he pulled down the shade so I or nobody else could see Smokey, it again. what did you see? Was it the emerald? No, Johnny. Well, what was it then? It was just a big gold setting. Like a brooch, like a leaf, uh, an ivy leaf. Baptize it then, Smokey. Manny Breed took the stone to him to break it up. And if Bildo still has it there... Come on, Smokey, let's go. Yeah. It was after dark now. The place where Bildo lived was on little more than a dark alley. The shade on the back room that he used for a shop was tightly drawn. But there was a light inside. Johnny. Yeah. Maybe Manny is in there with them. I don't know, Smokey. But we'll take no chances. When I kick the door open... Don't bother, boys. What? And I'll reach for any gun because I got this. Manny, break. That's right. Or is it Arnold Bixby? Or maybe Roger Gold? I'll take your choice, Dollar. You are Johnny Dollar, aren't you? Sure, if you like. And you, buddy... Too bad that Bildo recognized you when you showed your ugly puss at his window. That's what tipped me off to be ready for anything. Well, Dollar, this is going to be your last case. Is it, Manny? Yeah, yeah, sure is. Come on, pal, open up. It's me, Manny. What's this? All right, come on. Get inside, both of you. Come on. Hey, what is this? What, see, pal? You were right about it being Smokey Sullivan, you saw. Yeah, yeah. And that stone there on the work table, Manny? <laughs> well, what do you think? Hey, this one. Who is he? Well, pal, this is the great Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar? Yeah. But he uh, won't be for long. Take his gun away. Yeah, yeah, no, I will. Yeah. All right, let me have it. That's good. Now, you see, Dollar, it's going to be your gun that kills you two. Just as soon as Fritzy shuts that door. Go on, pal, shut it. Yeah, yeah, I closed it. All right. Nobody moves. What the? It's Tommy. Tommy Winkler. Watch him, Tommy. Oh, boy, like the U.S. Marines, Tommy. Thanks. Pleasure, pleasure, Johnny. Yes, thanks. But, Smokey, you know, you're a dog. I thought you said to come here just to look for a possible arson setup. Oh, yeah, well... Instead, I walk in on a... Well, what's this? Here on this work table. That's it, Tommy. The Ivy Emerald. Kind of made your trip over here worthwhile, didn't it? So, the Emerald's back. And all's right with the world. Just one thing, though. My, uh, my commission on this one is to be split three ways. A third to Smokey, and a third uh, for Tommy Winkler. As for the expense account, well, if you pay that commission promptly, you can forget it. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Now, here's...
Here's our star to tell you about next week's story. Next week, proof the hard way of how wrong one can sometimes be. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar was written by Jack Johnstone, produced and directed by Bruno Zarato Jr. Music supervision by Ethel Huber. Johnny Dollar is played by Mandel Kramer. Also featured in the cast were Abby Lewis as Emily Sterlingwaite, Lawson Zerby as Harry Darlington, Joseph Julian as Smokey Sullivan, William Griffiths as Bob Baker, Jack Grimes as Manny Breed, Sam Gray as Fritz Bildo, and William Mason as Lieutenant Tommy Winkler. Be sure to join us next week, same time, same station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Lawrence when he speaks. The Ivy Emerald Matter, an episode of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, from the spring of 1962. You heard it here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. There's a kind of timely birthday coming up this week. Timely because the Winter Olympics ended just a couple of weeks ago with some landmark victories for African-American athletes. Well, Wednesday, March 9th, will be the 100th birthday of the oldest living African-American Olympic medalist, Herb Douglas Jr. Mr. Douglas captured the bronze in the long jump in the 1948 London Games. His African-American teammate, Willie Steele, won the gold in that event. Mr. Douglas's business career has been no less distinguished than his time as a world-class athlete. For decades, he was a vice president at the wine and spirits importer Shefflin & Company, now Moet Hennessy. A little more than five years ago, media personality Rebecca L. Hargrove interviewed Mr. Douglas for the NBC BLK channel. Here's part of that interview from the series Pathfinders. So, looking back, what were some of the most difficult challenges that you faced? More than likely, I would say to blend in with the community, the industry, the, in, the corporate community. We had to blend into it. And we had to blend into it by success stories, just like we did in sports. They accepted us after they knew that we could compete. They accepted us after it was known that we could sell, we could advertise, we could promote as well as anybody mm -hmm. in, the in the corporate industry. And it, it, it just uh, enlightens my heart. So you were an Olympian before you were a businessman. How did that prepare you to work in this global industry? And those of us, even within ourselves, were not sure that we could compete against the world in track and field like until Jesse Owen. The same thing happened in the corporate industry. We had to compete. So what I did, I influenced across the country the distributors to employ black salespeople. And after I had that, I had my basic foundation. So Jesse Owens, we hear, is a, was a mentor of yours. Can you tell us about his influence on you as an athlete and in your professional work? Jesse was one of the most honorable men I've ever met. He was one of the most giving men that I ever met. 
And we became very friendly in, let's say, the last 10 or 15 years of his life. We were on the telephone speaking to one another two or three times a month. He was my influence. And the Jesse Owens Foundation was founded in Chicago. The foundation mission is to give scholarships to underprivileged kids, and, and that's the bottom line. That is the real mission. Now, they have had other activities to raise funds, but all their funds, 100%, go for, for uh, the scholarships for our youth. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, my company, uh, they keep it going. So I feel very honored to, to be a part of that company that, that made this happen. Herb Douglas Jr., the oldest living American Olympic medalist of any race, interviewed by NBC News in 2016. Mr. Douglas will turn 100 years old this coming Wednesday. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Well, despite the inherent sexism in so many old-time radio shows, we'd like to think we celebrate women's history not just during the month of March, but all year long here on the big broadcast. And one way we do so is by frequently featuring the no-nonsense comedy master Eve Arden as Madison High English teacher Connie Brooks. True, she seems obsessed with the idea of settling into the then-traditional pattern of marriage with the school's ever-elusive biology teacher, Mr. Boynton, but she's also always witty, acerbic, and just plain funny. Here's an example from the late spring of 1951. It was broadcast over CBS as part of the series, Our Miss Brooks. For your entertainment and pleasure, here is Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden. It's time once again for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks, under the direction of Al Lewis. Well, for many of us, the early morning hours aren't the most cheerful time of the day. So it is with Our Miss Brooks, who teaches English at Madison High School. Fortunately, however, by the time we've had our second cup of coffee, most of us feel a good deal better. How true that is. I always feel quite a bit better after my second cup of coffee, which I have at 7.30 in the evening. <laughs> but when some extremely fortunate occurrence is impending, I can even be cheerful at breakfast. That was the case last Friday when I joined my landlady in the dinette. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. My, you're in a good humor this morning, Connie. It is grand to hear you singing like this. Thanks, Mrs. Davis. I've got a wonderful feeling. Everything's going my way. <laughs> and it's such a nice song, too. The beautiful Blue Danube. <laughs> have always been my favorite. The Strausses, mine too. I wouldn't get my meat anyplace else. <laughs> this reminds me of the last time you were in such high spirits. I'll never forget that morning. 
You flitted around like a gay little bird. When was that, Mrs. Davis? The day you found out that Mr. Conklin had to stay in bed with the flu. <laughs> I've got even better news than that today. You mean Mr. Conklin's resigned? Please, Mrs. Davis. Let's not wish for the moon. <laughs> but I did hear that Miss Enright is leaving school for the rest of the semester. She is? Yes. It seems her spinster sister is ill upstate. So Miss Enright's gotten a leave of absence and she's going up to nurse her. You mean Miss Enright's going to nurse her spinster sister for the rest of the semester? Yes. Oh, she'll nurse the spinster sister for the rest of the semester and away we'll go. Ooh. Oh, forgive me, Mrs. Davis. I can't get that blue Danube out of my head. Well, I know Daisy Enright's always been a rival of yours, Connie, so I can't blame you for being happy about her going. This leaves you a clear field with Mr. Boynton, doesn't it? Exactly. Now there's nothing between Mr. Boynton and me except Mr. Boynton. <laughs> but, Mr. Davis, you don't seem so enthusiastic about the news. Frankly, I'm not. Miss Enright's been conducting the course in Red Cross First Aid I've been taking three nights a week. Well, cheer up, Mrs. Davis. Even if the course is discontinued, you can take it again next season. But I was hoping to get some practical experience, Connie. Oh, that's Walter Denton to drive me to school. Be right with you, Walter. If you want first aid experience, Mrs. Davis, why don't you come out to the car and watch us take off? <laughs> take off? Yes, the way Walter starts that jalopy, it's ten to one I'll bang my head on the windshield. <laughs> well, now that we're on our way, let's have a nice, smooth ride to school, Walter. Okay, Miss Brooks. <laughs> hey, I'm sorry you banged your head on the windshield when we started. Oh, forget it. It's only a flesh wound. <laughs> Just try to control your tendency to speed, won't you? Yeah, I'll try. But it's awfully difficult on a beautiful day like today. I think I know how you feel, Walter. I'm rather related, too. Now that our joy stems from the same source, the imminent departure of one Daisy Enright. I couldn't be any happier if two Daisy Enrights were leaving. <laughs> I mean, Miss Enright's a very good teacher, Walter. Why should you be happy to see her go? Well, because my mother's been taking her first aid course. And everything she studies, she tries out on my father and me. Well, you shouldn't complain about that, Walter. Your mother's just trying to learn how to take better care of her family. Yeah, she sure took care of me last Monday. Seems she had to do some splint practice, so naturally she used me. You seem a little flexible for a splint, Walter. <laughs> No, she put the splint on my leg, Miss Brooks. And then, then she told me to walk across the room. And did you? I took one step and fell on my face. What did your mother do then? She bandaged my face. <laughs> but with six yards of sterile gauze. She used more, but my dad had nine yards wrapped around his. <laughs> With Miss Enright leaving, they'll probably discontinue the class until next year anyhow. But surely you've had similar experiences to mine. Mrs. Davis takes the same course. Doesn't she practice on you? 
No, Walter. Luckily, I've been out a good deal of the time. Mrs. Davis does all her first aid practicing on our next-door neighbor. Oh, Mrs. Landfield? That's right. Limpy Landfield, we call her. <laughs> Hi, Miss Brooks. Didn't Walter drive you to school today? Yes, Harriet. He'll be along in a minute. Oh, you certainly look radiant this morning, Miss Brooks. What's the reason for the big smile? I just told you Walter drove me to school, Harriet. I always smile when I get out of his car alive. <laughs> Whatever the reason, I'm glad you're so cheerful, Miss Brooks. Thank you, Harriet. Oh, before I forget, Daddy wants to see you in his office immediately. Have you any idea what he wants to see me about? No, but he sounded even more urgent than usual. You better get right on in, Miss Brooks. Very well, Harriet. I'll see you in class. Good luck, Miss Brooks. Enter. Uh, you wanted to see me, Mr. Conklin? I could answer more truthfully if you rephrased the question. <laughs> There's something about which you must see me? That's better. Yes. <laughs> Sit down, please. Now, I don't know whether or not you're aware of it, but our school is about to suffer a grievous loss. Miss Enright is leaving. I know. It's, it's terrible. <laughs> Please try to control your sobs. Since her sister is ailing, I've granted Miss Enright a leave of absence effective at once. You see, there's no one else to take care of the poor creature. And so Miss Enright that... will have to nurse her spinster sister for the rest of the semester. Exactly, Miss Brooks. <laughs> Believe me, it is with deep regret that I'll bid farewell to Miss Enright. She embodies all those qualities I most esteem in a teacher. She's very capable, Mr. Conklin, and I'm sure that uh, she's you... She's more than capable, Miss Brooks. When Miss Enright goes, I can't help feeling that some part of our school is going with her. Well, we shouldn't begrudge her a few pencils and erasers. <laughs> I mean, she'll be back in the fall, Mr. Conklin. I sincerely hope so. Now then, since it is too late in the season to hire outside help, this vacancy must be filled by other members of our faculty assuming additional duties. I think I just heard the school bell, Mr. Conklin, so if you'll excuse me. Uh, there I'll... was no bell, Miss Brooks. <laughs> Although her classes will be taken over by Mr. Chalmers, Miss Enright leaves another most important post to be filled. Namely, the Red Cross first aid course she conducted three nights a week. There goes that bell again. Be seated, Miss Brooks. In mentioning this post to you, I must remind you that in spite of the high honor that goes with the office, there is absolutely no financial recompense whatsoever. That bell is getting louder every minute. <laughs> Look, Mr. Conklin, it's been years since I got my certificate in first aid. Since the Red Cross, like Madison High itself, is run on a purely democratic basis, one may only serve it by exercising one's own free choice to serve. It's purely voluntary. But how do you know I'll volunteer, Mr. Conklin? Miss Brooks. <laughs> have a large bank account? I know, sir. And is teaching the only profession with which you're familiar? That's right, sir. And would you like to continue to make a living in this profession, Miss Brooks? 
certainly, sir. Well, well, then... I hereby exercise my own free, democratic, voluntary choice of saying yes. take over Daisy Enright's first aid course didn't help my appetite any. Nevertheless, when lunchtime came, I went to the school cafeteria, baited a table with meatloaf, and sat down to wait for Mr. Boynton. But as I toyed with my salad, it was Miss Enright's voice that broke in on my reverie. Well, Miss Brooks, as I live and breathe. Two faults that are easily remedied. <laughs> What are you doing, darling? Feeding your full little face again? What do you mean, again? I haven't had anything to eat since... What do you mean, full little face? <laughs> Just take it easy, darling. We've all got our troubles. Look. Look at what's happening with my poor sister, for instance. It's such a pathetic case. Picture, if you can, a poor, lonely spinster with hardly a friend in the world. Practically no one to turn to. I sympathize with you, Miss Enright. Now tell me about your sister. Quaint <laughs> <laughs> sense of humor. Now, but there's something I want to discuss with you. Do you mind if I sit down here for a moment? Not at all. I can't digest this food anyway. Miss <laughs> <laughs> Brooks, I understand that you've been requested to complete my first aid course. Or is the word volunteered? The word is railroaded. <laughs> what I can't figure out is why Mr. Conklin picked on me. Oh, you were a natural for the job, my dear. Otherwise, I would never have recommended you. You recommended me? Oh, dear. Now the cat is out of the bag, isn't it? I don't blame you for being self-conscious. <laughs> Mrs. Brooks, are you inferring... If the bag fits, get back in it. <laughs> going out in the blaze of infamy, aren't you? Going out? Oh, oh, but that's what I sat down to tell you, darling. I'm not going anyplace. My sister has decided to come down here and live with me. Isn't that a relief? It's such a relief, I may kill myself. <laughs> well, at least I won't have to conduct those classes of yours. Oh, but you will, darling. That's one of the provisions I made when I agreed to stay. I told Mr. Conklin that I'd have to spend all my free time with my sister, and he said that he didn't mind a bit, as long as you took over for me. As one English teacher to another, Miss Enright, I'd just like to say that I am the one who has been took over. <laughs> I just don't think it's fair for you Good to... Good afternoon, step... ladies. I hope I'm not interrupting anything. Oh, no, not a thing, Mr. Boynton. Miss Brooks was speaking. <laughs> Thanks, Miss Enright. Oh, that food you've got looks very appetizing, Mr. Boynton. Oh, yes, I thought I'd take a whirl at the pot roast today. But I kept this plate of meatloaf covered for you, Mr. Boynton. Oh, I can probably handle them both and starve. <laughs> oh, my, that roast looks yummy. And so does the meatloaf. Would you care to try one or the other, Miss Enright? Why don't you try both, Miss Enright? You can feed one of your faces and I'll feed the other. <laughs> 
I, uh, I think Miss Brooks is a trifle miffed because she's going to have to take over some of my duties. Oh, yes, I heard you were leaving, Miss Enright. When are you going? Surprise, surprise. I'm not going at all, Mr. Boynton. You're not? No. Well, that is a pleasant bit of news. Did you hear that, Miss Brooks? Miss Enright's staying on. She's not leaving at all. Isn't that just splendid? <laughs> Oh, eat your pot roast. <laughs> My dear sister is coming to live with me, Mr. Boynton. I'm going to take care of her. Oh, I see. Well, well that'll keep you pretty close to home most evenings, won't it? Oh, oh, I don't know. One can't look after one's sister every night. Now can one? If one doesn't go out until one's asked, one can. <laughs> Excuse me, I've got several things to do. Oh, do you have to go so soon, Miss Brooks? I'm afraid I do, Mr. Boynton. Here's your check for the meatloaf. Oh, thank you, Miss Brooks. But uh, where, uh, well, where is, is your... Uh, I uh, paid my check, Mr. Boynton. Oh, uh, so long. Toodle. <laughs> oh, before you go, darling, I'd like to remind you that I'm coming over to your house tonight to brush you up on the first aid course. It was Mr. Conklin's idea. What? As a matter of fact, he's coming along with me. But I didn't plan on... He said we'd be there at 8 sharp, Miss Brooks, so you'd better be ready at that time. You know, this first aid course is Mr. Conklin's pet project. Uh, Sort of like Mr. Boynton is to certain other members of the faculty. (laughs) If you know what I mean, dear Mr. Boynton. (laughs) Huh? I guess it's safe to leave him here for a few minutes. The Emperor has spoken. I guess I'll see you tonight, Miss Enright. Goodbye, Mr. Boynton. Uh, goodbye, Miss Brooks. Oh, uh, don't stop at the dessert counter, dear. From the back, those calories show like mad. <laughs> if I could plead manslaughter, I'd kill her. <laughs> All the unjust, tyrannical... I'll take it easy, Miss Brooks. You know what talking to yourself is the first sign of, don't you? Yes, Walter, but I don't care. Oh, things can't be that terrible. Tell Uncle Walt what's the matter. It's pretty bad, Unc. <laughs> Miss Enright just told me that she and Mr. Conklin are coming over to my place tonight to brush me up on her first aid course. What's so bad about that? This is a chance to kill two of your favorite birds with one stone. If you're going to show them what you remember from your first date experience, you'll get a chance to not only clobber Miss Enright, but to show Mr. Conklin that you're totally unfit to take over the job. Well, Miss Brooks, what do you think of the scheme? Walter, if we were in France, I'd kiss you on both cheeks and give you the Legion of Honor. <laughs> Good evening, Miss Brooks. Hello, Mr. Conklin, Miss Enright. Come in, won't you? Thank you. Just leave your coats and heads out here. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, darling. Well, are you all prepared for your refresher course? I really don't think it'll be necessary, Miss Enright. You see, I've been rereading my manual, and you'd be surprised how quickly the things I'd learned came back to me. Well, I'm delighted to hear that, Miss Brooks. 
But if you're going to instruct others, I'd like to see some practical demonstration of this knowledge. Of course, sir. Just follow me into the living room, please. As you can see, I've moved most of the furniture into one corner of the room, and I've got the splints, bandages, and adhesive all ready. Excellent. Now then, let's get right to business. We will suppose that our subject has sustained a fractured elbow and a broken ankle. Let's make it two broken ankles. Very well, two broken ankles. Now then, lie down, Miss Brooks. Yes, sir, then we can... Wait a minute. Why should I lie down? If someone had sustained two broken ankles and a fractured elbow, is it too unreasonable to assume she'd be lying down? No, sir, but the wrong bones are being broken. That is, I want to show you what I know about first aid. Miss Enright's the one who must lie down. Oh, you want me to pretend I've been through an accident? Believe me, it's typecasting. <laughs> Just crumple, dear. The rug is spotless so far. <laughs> now, uh, let, let's get on with it. Do as she says, Miss Enright. Oh, very well. Now, we'll assume that Miss Enright has been in an automobile accident, and besides having both arms broken, she's in an acute state of shock. Shock? Well, how do I react? As if Mr. Boynton finally asked you for a date. <laughs> now, my first job is to kneel by her side and take care of the arm. This silk sleeve seems to be covering up the injury. a brand new dress. Please. What do you want to be? Neat or cured? <laughs> now, it's, it's obvious from the looks of this arm that it's badly injured. Where my fingers touch, it's all black and blue. See, Mr. Conklin? Where? Where is it black and blue? Ouch! Right there. <laughs> now, hand me that catsup bottle, please, Mr. Conklin. Well, here you are, but what's it for? Realism. This was a pretty bad accident, remember? Look, you're ruining my dress. Quiet, you're in a state of shock. <laughs> now we'll start bandaging the arm. First, I put the splint gently against the skin. Oh! <laughs> then I start the roller bandage here. <clears throat> now I wrap the gauze with one arm this way. This go on. Then I put the other arm through and tie the bandage this way. Now, I reverse the process, again bringing the other arm through the bandage and wrapping it securely. Uh, now what? Now, if someone will untie my arms, I'll continue. <laughs> uh, Miss Brooks, can you or can you not tie a firm bandage? This splint was a bit too rough, Mr. Conklin, but if Miss Enright will let me use one of her legs... Now, see here, Miss Brooks. Now, uh, please, please cooperate, Miss Enright. Stand up and let's see if Miss Brooks can tie a firm bandage on your leg. Well, if you insist, Mr. Conklin, there. Now then, Mr. Conklin, if you'll just stand nearby and hand me a few things. Very well, very well. Uh, first, please pass me the adhesive. Uh, here you are. Now, we'll take down your stocking, Miss Enright. There. And wrap this adhesive nice and tight. There. Oh, Miss Brooks, but you don't put adhesive next to the skin. First, the bandage must come. You're so right, darling. Off you come, adhesive. <laughs> now, now we take this bandage and... Oh, uh, hand me a splint, please, Mr. Conklin. Uh, here, here. The idea is to get a good, steady support for the leg. Around we go with the bandage, all around the splint. Another bandage, please, Mr. Conklin. Here's one. Now we wrap this around the other one. Now the adhesive, round and round and 
brown. There. How does that feel? Solid? Very, Very solid. solid. Good grief, you tied Miss Enright's leg to mine. <laughs> oh, for heaven's sake. I thought one of those legs had more wool on it than the other. <laughs> Bandage untied. I'll have to tear this splint out first. Ouch! There's a big splinter right in my thumb. Good. Now, for your next test, let's suppose that somebody's got a big splinter right in his thumb. Oh, I'll get it. Mr. Boynton, come on in. Well, I just dropped by to return a book I borrowed from Mrs. Davis, but. Oh, you've got company. Please join us, Mr. Boynton. Oh, good evening, Mr. Conklin, Miss Enright. Say, what are you doing, having a three-legged race? <laughs> Don't be funny, Boynton. There has been an accident. <laughs> What's that on Miss Enright's dress? Oh, no. How do you like that? A biology teacher who faints at the sight of catsup. I didn't faint, Miss Brooks. I, I just slipped on this scatter rug. Well, stop jabbering, everyone. I've got to get this splinter removed. Would you like me to probe, Mr. Conklin? Keep away from me, you angel of destruction. Never fear, Mr. Conklin. Daisy Enright's on the job. I'll get it out for you in just a jiffy. Now, here's a nice clean pin. Now, give Daisy your thumb. Come on, come to Daisy. Down, Daisy, down, girl. Here. Here, Miss Enright. Now, please be careful. Oh, there's nothing to it, Mr. Conklin. There, it's out. Say, that didn't hurt a bit. Remarkable, Miss Enright. You know, everyone should master first aid. I've been thinking of taking that course myself. You have? Yes. I'd like to sign up right now for the balance of the semester. It's a deal. Monday night at 8, I throw out the first bandage. Over my limp carcass, you do. <laughs> Miss Enright? I'll move heaven and earth if you take over your old course. Oh, well, that won't be necessary, Mr. Conklin. Now, she's halfway to heaven already. <laughs> oh, well, Miss Enright, there's just one question I'd like to ask you. Yes, Miss Brooks? What sort of splint does one use after one cuts one's throat? <laughs> Miss Brooks returns in just a moment. And now, once again, here is our Miss Brooks. Well, Mr. Conklin was so delighted at Miss Enright's decision to resume her first aid class that he insisted on treating her to an ice cream soda before taking her home. 
So they were out of the house before I could reach her jugular vein. <laughs> That's when I got out my Red Cross manual. If, uh, if you're so interested in first aid, Mr. Boynton, maybe we could practice a bit before your first lesson. Oh, I'd love to, Miss Brooks. Uh, here's an interesting problem. Huh? It deals with a back injury. For want of a better subject, let's just say I'm the injured party. Now, you place your left arm around my shoulders. Like this? <sighs> yes. <laughs> then your right arm goes around my waist. Like this. What does the book say we should do next? Never mind the book. Ad lib a little. <laughs> Starring Eve Arden is produced by Larry Byrne. Written by Al Lewis and Arthur Alsberg with the music of Wilbur Hatt. Mr. Conklin was played by Gail Gordon. Others in tonight's cast were Jane Morgan, Dick Crenna, Gloria McMillan, and Mary Jane Cross. Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden from June 3rd, 1951. And from the big broadcast, I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. We try to make sure all the old shows you hear on the big broadcast are well-produced. And when the art form is done right, you don't really notice one of its most crucial elements, sound effects. Good sound effects seem natural and logical. They help create an illusion of reality. And great sound effects can be just as expressive as the music, the words of the script, and the performances of the actors. In tonight's Gunsmoke episode, listen to the way just the pace and intensity of the various footsteps tell you about the emotions and thoughts of the characters. It's a story with some contemporary resonance for us in this time when we hear so much about the stress that health care workers are under. Imagine what it was like in the 1870s. The episode's called Doc Quits, and with a special announcement about the future of the series, it comes from August 27, 1955, CBS and Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal, the first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. 
Hey, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, what, Chester? Ain't that Doc's buggy setting out by Joe Crumley's shack there? Huh? Uh, yeah, it must be. Nesters like them couldn't afford a buggy. Mm. Yeah, it is. Yeah, let, let's stop and see what's going on, huh? All right, sir. <laughs> I bet old Doc will be surprised to see us way out here. <laughs> Yeah, it's not much of a place Cromley's got there, is it? Strange. My. They better quit if you ask me. Now, let's time to the buggy, Chester. All right, sir. Who's that out there? It's Matt Dillon, Miss Cromley. Hello, Marshal. Ma'am. Matt. Hi, Doc. Chester. Hello, Doc. Uh, we, uh, we were on our way to Fort Lauderdale, and we saw Doc's buggy, so we thought we'd stop and say hello. How you do, ma'am? Chester. Uh, your husband sick, Miss Crumley? No. No, Marshal. He died, Matt. Oh, I... I'm sorry to hear that, ma'am. Doctor and all he could just... Just weren't no use. I might as well not have come. I couldn't do a thing for him. Now, Doc, don't say that. You've been up 24 hours trying to save him. It's not time that saves a patient, Mrs. Crumley. It's knowledge... Knowledge I don't have. You know what there is to know, Doc. Nobody knows more. Your husband's dead, Mrs. Crumley. I wanted to save him. You tried. Uh, what are you going to do now, ma'am? Uh, can we help you in any way? Thank you, Marshal. There's nothing. With Joe gone, I can't stay here. I reckon in a day or so, I'll... I'll pack up and move on. I... I don't know where I'll go. I, I've got no place. I, excuse me, I've got to get inside. Now, oh, that poor lady. He didn't have to die. It's not your fault, Well, then Doc. whose fault is it, I'd like to know? Now, Doc, you're not making sense. It's being a doctor that doesn't make sense. Spending my life trying to look into the faces of people like Mrs. Crumley... And having to listen to them thank me for letting their people die. Oh, I'm sick. You need a drink, Doc. I know what I need. Now, why don't you leave me alone? Get your horses off my buggy and go on up to Larned or wherever you're headed for. Uh, yeah, sure, Doc. Come on, Chester. Yeah, Doc. How long are you going to be gone, Matt? No. Maybe a week. Uh-huh. <clears throat> when you get back to Dodge, I'll buy you a drink. <laughs> Thanks, Doc. If I'm still there. Yep. Come on, go. 
My name is Betchel, Marshal. Jameson Betchel. Well, how do you do, sir? Uh, this is Chester Proudfoot. Chester? How you do? I came by before, Marshal, but uh, your office was locked up. Well, we've been away. We just got back. What can I do for you, Mr. Betchel? Why, nothing, sir. Only wanted to meet you. I met most everybody in Dodge by now. I've been getting acquainted. You know how it is when you move to a new town. <laughs> you gone into business of some kind? Well, not exactly, Marshal. I'm a professional man. Oh, well... What? Well, <laughs> that is, I'm a doctor, Chester. I know. Well, we... We've got... A doctor? Yes, indeed. <laughs> well, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure meeting you both, and I'm sure we'll be good friends... I, uh, I would admire to buy you both a drink next time we meet. Good day, gentlemen. Good day, Dr. Betchel. You know, it's a funny thing, Chester. What? Doc said he'd buy me a drink when I got back. He did? Yeah. If he's still here, he said... You want to stop in Delmonico's for a cup of coffee? <laughs> All right. Hey, look, Mr. Dillon. What? Over yonder. It's Doc, by the window there. Well, he hasn't left. No, sir. Hey, there's Miss Kitty. Out there in the back there, see? Oh, well, I'll go say hello to her, Chester. You go sit with the doc. I'll, I'll join you in a couple of minutes. All right, sir. Well, hello, Matt. Hello, Kitty. Sit down. Oh, thank you. Good to see you back. How are you, Kitty? Well, I'm all right, but I'm the only one. Oh, what do you mean? I mean Doc. He's acting like a bear. Oh? I asked him to sit with me when he came in, but he just grumbled something about not being fit company for anybody. And he went over there and sat all by himself. You know, he's been like that for a week. Yeah. Uh, he took Joe Crumley's dying pretty hard, Kitty. Well, that's just part of it, Matt. Oh? This new doctor, Betchel. Ever since he came, Doc's been getting grumpier. <laughs> Maybe he's been losing patience. But special. Uh, Doc's never had any competition before. Well, he's got it now. Look. What? Betchel. Oh. Yeah. Now, what's he up to? 
You know, he'd better stay away from Doc if he knows what's good for him. Uh, maybe he's only trying to be friendly. I don't want to talk to you now, about anything. Don't you get all riled up, Adam. There's going to be a fight in a minute, Matt. Yeah, I better go see what this is all about, kid. Let me know if you find out. Yeah, I will. To explain my position, and if you care to listen to me for a minute instead of hollering all the time, well, maybe I'll I'm... start carrying a gun, Mitchell. Hello, Doc. Matt. Hello there, Marshal. Sit down, Betchel. Thank you, sir. I was about to. Just what are you buttoning on this for, Matt? Why don't you go arrest some drunks or do what you're supposed to be doing? It's good to see you, Doc. No, it is. Hmm? Hey, Doc. There's Jake Worth out there. He's beckoning to you. Uh, Why don't you go see what he wants, Chester? Yes, sir. Who is Jake Worth? I don't think I've met him. Uh, Jake's a rancher, one of the biggest in the country. Yes, you ought to meet him, Betchel. <laughs> yes, he's worth a lot of money. Oh, now, Doc, there's enough here for both of us. He just won't be reasonable, Mark. Reasonable. About what, Betchel? About my practicing here. I don't see why we should be in competition, do you? Well, if there are two doctors in the place, I guess they're bound to be in competition. Oh, two doctors. Now, wait just a moment. Everybody I've talked to admits there's more work here than one man can handle. Well, I guess that's true, isn't it, Doc? Oh, sure, yes, that's true. Why, of course it is. I've already got some patients. Now, my idea is to split the practice in a friendly way and then really go to work. We'd still have more than either of us could do. Tell him the rest, Betchel. Oh, yes, tell him the real idea. Well, sir, since we will be giving people better care and all, it's only fair we get paid more for it. Uh, What do you mean? He wants me to agree to a raise in fees, Matt. Yes, a raise. (laughs) He wants to make a lot of money. Everybody pays more than they can afford or they stay sick, according to him. Well, now, why shouldn't they pay more? Where'd you get the idea that being a doctor is like running a business, Betchel? There's nothing wrong with a doctor making a living, is there? You haven't even proved to me that you are a doctor, Betchel. Are you going to start that again? <laughs> He's one of these bleeding blister men, Matt. That's all he knows. Now, Dr. Adams, I am a patient man, but I've got my limits. Now, you watch what you're telling everybody about me, or there's going to be some trouble. Are you threatening me? Well, I'm just not going to stand for any more of your talk. Well, what are you going to do about it, then? I'm hey, going Doc. to insist on... Hey, Doc? Yes, what is it, Chester? Hey, Jake Worth has brought his boy to see you. Jake? Which boy? Billy. You know, Doc, the, the puny, sickly one. Jake says he's getting worse. He's took to having fits lately. He's got him in a wagon outside. <laughs> All right, Chester. I think I'll go with you, Doc. You'll be in better company than staying here. You're jealous, Adams. You're jealous, and what's more, you're greedy. That's enough, Betchel. Why, sure, you're on his side, Marshal. But I don't care. I've already got quite a few folks on mine. Any scoundrel can fool people for a little while. <laughs> you coming, Matt? Yeah, okay. You're uh, being pretty hard on him, Doc. Not hard enough. Doc, over here. Hello, Jake. Hello, Doc. Marshal. How are you, Jake? I just couldn't leave him here alone, Doc. I never know when he's going to have one of them fits again. They come on terrible sudden. I got him in the back of the wagon here. Wait a minute, Jake. What's the matter, Doc? 
I... I might as well tell you now. There's no use my even looking at your boy. What? Fitz and the way your boy is. I don't know anything to do for him. But you got to do something. Uh, I'm sorry, Jake. I'm real sorry. Maybe I can do something, Mr. Worth. Who are you? My name is Betchel. Jameson Betchel. I'm the new doctor. Oh, sure. I've heard about you. Oh, and I don't listen to him, Jake. He can't help your boy any more than I can. Doc Adams is a little old-fashioned, Mr. Worth. I can tell you there's always something that can be done for any patient. Oh, that's a lie. Let him talk, Doc. At least he's willing to try. There's nothing to try. I tell you, medicine doesn't understand cases like your boy yet. You're jealous of Dr. Betchell, ain't you? Oh, my jealous. Well, that's what I've heard folks saying. I didn't believe it at first, but I do now. Jake, I've heard all I need to know about Betchell's doctrine around here, and I don't think he should be practicing at all. I've told you to stop saying that. Now, I'll... wait a minute, Betchell. Let him talk. Well, I don't want to hear no more talk. No wonder so many folks are turning away from you, Doc. They need somebody who will help them, that's why. You think bleeding your boy is going to help him? There's other ways to treat him besides bleeding. Uh, like what? Well, if you don't happen to know, I Come don't... on, Dr. Betchell. Get to work on the boy. Why, certainly, Mr. Worth. Perhaps it'd be better if you drive him home first. I'll get my horse and follow. Anything you say, Doctor. Matt? Yeah, Doc? I'm going to take down my shingle... And I mean it this time. Oh, now, Doc, you can't do that. You just come and watch me. Once Doc made up his mind about something, there was no talking him out of it. He took down his shingle, all right... But nobody seemed to care much. Till two days later, when Betchel nearly doubled his fees. And then everybody blamed it on Doc somehow. And got mad at him. But that didn't bother Doc. He started going to bed early and sleeping late for a change. And most of his time was spent in my office playing penny-ante poker with Chester. He wouldn't even talk about it. Till the day I heard something I thought might rouse him. I went back to tell him about it. <laughs> I'd swear and declare, Doc, you just amaze me something serious sometimes. <laughs> Mr. Dillon, you are getting this game. This is the easiest money I ever made. Oh, yeah. That's a while. I'll get it back, Chester. The whole 90 cents. <laughs> Uh, Doc. Yes, Matt? You know old Miss Cullen. Mrs. Cullen? Well, I ought to. I brought her back to life half a dozen times. Well, you won't have to anymore, Doc. What's happened? She died about noon today. She did? Dr. Betchell decided a good bleeding was what she needed. Bleeding? That poor old lady. Yeah, her boy told me. No wonder she died. She couldn't stand that. 
Why didn't she send for me? Oh, maybe she'd heard that you'd quit. I'd have gone if she'd wanted me. The only reason I quit is so people will find out in a hurry what kind of a doctor this betchel is. It'd take them twice as long if I was still on the job. And the sooner they find out, the less harm he'll be able to do. What about Miss Cullen? Oh, she she was 90 years old, Matt. Betchel killed her all right, but she couldn't have lived much longer anyway. Maybe her death will save lives in the long run. I don't know. Yeah, I guess you're right, Doc. I hadn't thought about it that way. I'm going to go to the Alphaganza and have me a drink. Anybody want to join me? You know, a man who isn't working shouldn't be spending money, Doc. Can't think of a better time to spend it. Marshal. How are you, Sam? Uh, What'll it be, gentlemen? Shot of rye and a glass of beer all around, Sam. Sure, Doc. (laughs) Oh, Sam. uh, By the way, how's your back feel? Oh, why? I haven't noticed it so much lately. Well, I told you it might go away by itself. <laughs> well, you said there was nothing you could do for it, so I went to see Dr. Betchell. Oh, yeah, I suppose he fixed it. Hmm? He told me to mix some cold water and vinegar and salt and rub it with that. Vinegar? So, I've also been taking unicorn root and cayenne pepper. Well, you're a strong man if that hasn't ruined you. Well, <laughs> made me so sick I can't feel my back no more. Hmm. Uh, Doc, I, I shouldn't have gone to him. That ain't no way to treat anything. I'll get you your drinks now. Well, Doc, there's one man who's found out. One isn't enough, man. Doc. Hello, Jake. You gotta come out to the ranch, Doc. You gotta come out now. Why? What's wrong? It's the boy, Billy. Oh. Well, I can't go, Jake. Of course you can. It's not my case. I told Dr. Betzel not to come back no more. I told him on my way in here. I guess you didn't make it too clear, Jake. What? I might have known that this was what you had in mind. What are you doing here? You're after Dr. Adams to take care of Billy. I sure am. Well, he's not going to do Don't it. Don't you tell me what I'm going to do. Betzel, after what you've done to that boy, it's a wonder he's still alive. I should have stopped you right off. What did he do, Jake? I'll tell you what he did, Marshal. When it got real cold at night, he took the boy's clothes off and made him go outside and lay on some sacks. And then he throwed buckets of ice-cold spring water and kept it up until Billy was hollering and screaming. But finally made him quit. And that boy's real sick now. But Betchel ain't gonna get nowhere near him again. If you'd have let me finish the treatment, he'd been all right. Finish the treatment? If he'd have let you finish the treatment... 
The boy that died of pneumonia. Adams, you talk anymore. I'm just going to tear you open. No, you're not, Betchel. Oh, let him fight his own fights, Marshal. No, I won't let him. Doc's too valuable a man to get busted up in a brawl. Why, golly, the marshal's right. I'll stand up for him, too. You're just a fool, Jake. Get out of the way. You're coming with me, Doc? On one condition. What? That Betchel leaves town. Why, you can't... All right, hold it, Betchel. I don't know how you got started in this business. Probably in a medicine show. It's happened before. But you're a fraud. You're the most obvious fraud I ever saw. I won't. And I won't stand for your posing as a doctor anymore. Not around here, I won't. You've done all the harm you're going to do. I'm with you there, Doc. I said I'd tear you open, Adams, and I'll... Don't try it, but... I might have known a doctor would be carrying a knife. He ain't no more doctor than I am. Chester. Yes, sir? When he comes to, lock him up. We'll throw him on the first stage, leaving Dodge. I'll do it with pleasure, Mr. Dillon. Will you come now, Doc? You understand, Jake? I can't cure your boy's fits. I should have listened to you in the first place, Doc. There are a lot of people who should have, Jake. That's true, Marshal. Will you come, Doc? You can keep those drinks, Sam. I don't have time to waste in here anymore. This is William Conrad. As you may know, Gunsmoke is going into its second year on radio. Now, during this time, many of you have written the makers of Chesterfield and L&M Filters, asking them to put Gunsmoke on television, too. Well, here's some good news for you. Gunsmoke is going on TV starting Saturday, September 10th, 10 p.m. Eastern Time over the CBS television network. If you enjoy our radio shows, I know you'll go for Gunsmoke on TV. Now TV will have an authentic adult western, the Gunsmoke you know. Remember, next week, Gunsmoke Radio at this time, and in two weeks, Gunsmoke TV at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Produced and directed by Norman McDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. Featured in the cast were Lawrence Dobkin, James Nusser, Frank Cady, and Ann Morrison. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNair is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Medicine's a calling, for Doc Adams, anyway, as he belied the title of that episode, Doc Quits, from Gunsmoke in the summer of 1955, and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer, and Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are our audio engineers. 
You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org. Our website is thebigbroadcast.org. You'll find some engaging extras on our Facebook page, The Big Broadcast. And now you can check us out on Instagram. We're Big Broadcast WAMU. I mentioned the importance of sound effects in that Gunsmoke episode, and sometimes they can move a story ahead all by themselves. That's the case in tonight's Dragnet episode, where sound alone depicts a crucial action. From October 1st, 1949, and NBC, it's Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. NBC brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to burglary detail. A gang of hijackers has started to work in your city. Truckloads of valuable merchandise have vanished. The thieves are clever, seem to have a foolproof system. Your job, find them. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime, investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch on the security of your home, your family, and your life. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Thursday, March 6th. It was windy in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of burglary detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was on the way back from the record bureau, and it was 5.35 a.m. when I got to room 2A. Interrogation room. Read this to him, Ben. Yeah. 2,600 dozen nylon stockings, 45 bolts of silk, 58 cases imported perfume. Where are you dumping this stuff, Laval? That's what we want to know. I told you the truth. I have nothing to do with it. I don't know anything about it. What was this stolen waybill doing in the cab of your truck? How many times do I have to tell you? I don't know. Your fingerprints are all over it. You must have carried it there. I didn't carry it there. Somebody's out to frame me. How many in the hijack gang, Lavelle? I'm not in a hijack game. I told you I don't know. When are you going to let me go? Who's the head of the gang? I don't know any head of the gang. I want to get out of here. You're covering for somebody. I'm not covering for anybody. You take the rap for all this, you're going to have a beard down to your knees by the time you get out. I'm not taking any rap. Then let's have it. Oh, I'm tired. $42,000 worth. You know who took it, you know where it is. They could have disappeared anywhere on their way from the east to the thousand places. Nothing was missing from those shipments when they came in on the train. Everything was there when they were unloaded at the warehouse. Then I don't know. I don't know. Every dollar's worth was accounted for when it was loaded on the truck. Well, where is it now? I'm tired. We've been here all night. Let me... Well, let me read it for you again. 2,600 dozen nylon stockings, 45 bolts of silk, 58 cases imported perfume. And you're trying to tell us somebody hijacked all that from the trucks without you knowing it? The trucks were loaded at the warehouse. We went out to eat. We came back, got in the trucks, delivered the stuff, and that's all I know. And while you were out eating, the receipts for the load disappeared, too. Is that right, Lavelle? I don't know where the waybills are, the shipping clerk. That's his job. We talked to him. He says one of you could have taken the waybill. Well, then he's lying. I didn't take him. Then what was this waybill doing in the cab of your truck? I told you, I don't know. 
Somebody's trying to frame me. Why? I don't know. Somebody. I don't know why. Then you better come up with an answer, mister. Look, I'm tired. We've been here since six o'clock last night. We're all tired. Who are you covering for? What are you trying to build? I need that coffee left, Ben. It's cold. It's all right. You want some, Lavelle? No. All right, now, look, let's get one thing straight. We've been here all night. We can be here all day, tomorrow, the day after that, and the day after that. Yeah. We got enough to make you on this. You know that. We're going to stay with you. You tell us the truth. Everything. I've told you all I'm going to tell you. We stay here for six months. You got it all. This your home phone, Hillside 8321. That's right, 8321. What time's your wife get up, Lavelle? What do you mean? Ben, get an outside line. Yeah. You're not going to call my home. That's Hillside 8321, Ben. Outside, please. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't. Not my wife. Please. All right. Ask the questions again. This time I'll give you the answers. Thomas Laval was 38 years old. He was a well-respected man in his community. Sometimes it's like that. You can question a man for hours and he'll never give you any information. But somewhere in every man's makeup, there's a weak point. We were lucky enough to find Laval's. He told us that he would give us the locations where the hijacked goods were hidden. He told us the addresses were written on the ledge of a windowsill on the seventh floor of the Teamsters Union Hall. It was 8.30 a.m. On the seventh floor, is that right? Yeah. Do me a favor. Don't make it too big. Well, look, we have to walk through the hiring hall before we get to the elevators in the back. Yeah? These handcuffs. They'll see them, all the guys in the hall. They know me. Can't you take them off my wrists? Till we get in the elevator? Sorry, Lavelle. Well, I won't try anything, but don't make me walk in front of him with these on. Sorry. Just till we get in the elevator. Can't you do that? I, I don't want the guys to see me. Well, here's my overcoat, Lavelle. I'll drape it over your hands here, and they won't see the cuffs. There you are. Come on. Hi, Tom. How are you? Hi. Tom? Not much. Oh, that was easy. Let's take the elevator. Yeah. Cigarette? No, thanks. You? Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Down this way. Let me show you. To the left. A window up ahead there. Yeah, this one. I don't see anything on the window sill. It's on the outside. Open the window and let me check. Yeah. Let me see it. Ben, grab him. He's trying to jump. Hey, get back here. Get back. I told you here. Get him, Joe. Can't hold him. He's pulling me out. Hold on, Ben. Grab me. Joe. Joe. He's slipping. Try, Joe. Hold on. He's kicking loose. I can't hold him. Hold him, Joe. Ben! 
<clears throat> I couldn't hold him. You almost went with him. Let's get downstairs. What happened? Call an ambulance. There's been an accident. Thomas Laval was 38 years old. He was a well-respected man in his community. He died with the same reputation. We had a prisoner who had met his death while in our custody. In cases like this, we had to have witnesses. By the time we got to the street, the usual accident crowd had gathered. Anybody here see the accident? What you want, witnesses? Yeah. Did you see it? Yeah, we saw it. Let's get their names, Ben. My name's Pete Garfield. This is Jack Morris. We'll be your witnesses. You'll probably be subpoenaed for the inquest tomorrow morning. Sure, we'll be there. We saw you push the guy out the window. We saw you kill him. The next morning at 10 a.m. in the basement of the Hall of Justice, Harold J. Lane, deputy coroner, city and county of Los Angeles, read the report of the findings of the autopsy on the body of the deceased Thomas Laval. As is customary at a coroner's inquest, the identification witness was called to testify first. Elizabeth Laval, please. Raise your right hand. Do you solemnly swear that the testimony you're about to give to be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Yes. Be seated. State your name. Elizabeth Laval. What is your address? 1216 East Camarillo Drive. What is your occupation? I'm a housewife. What is your relation to the deceased? His wife. Have you viewed the body of the deceased in this office? Yes. Who was the deceased? Husband. Thomas Laval. Is there anything further you wish to add? Thank you. Step down, please. Joseph Friday. Raise your right hand. Do you solemnly swear that the testimony you're about to give to be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth will help you, God? I do. Be seated. State your name. Joe Friday. What is your address? 4656 Collis Avenue. What is your occupation? I'm a police officer in and for the city of Los Angeles. Are you the investigating and arresting officer on this case? I am. Will you state briefly the facts relating to the death of the deceased? On the morning following the arrest by us of the deceased on suspicion of grand theft merchandise, he expressed a desire to assist us in the apprehension of suspects involved in these thefts and the recovery of property taken in them. Did he assist you? Well, he informed us that if we took him to the Teamsters Union Hall, that he'd be able to obtain addresses of the locations where the stolen property was cached. You then took him there? Yes, we did. What happened? When we arrived, he requested us to remove his handcuffs. We refused. The deceased then informed us that the addresses were written on a window ledge on the seventh floor. When we arrived at the window, under the pretense of searching for the addresses, he threw himself over the ledge. I grabbed his left leg to restrain him, but he kicked loose. Uh, did you at any time have any idea that the deceased planned such action? I did not. What did you do then? We immediately went to the location of the body and had an ambulance dispatched. Do you have anything further to state? No, I have not. Are there any questions from the jury? That's all, Officer Friday. Step down. Peter Garfield. Raise your right hand. Yeah. 
Do you solemnly swear that the testimony you're about to give to be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Yeah. Be seated. State your name. Pete Garfield. What is your address? 1654 North Pico. What is your occupation? Truck driver. Down at General Warehouse. Did you know the deceased? Yeah. How did you know him? I worked with him. And that cop's a liar, and so is his buddy sitting over there. Please confine the testimony of this inquest to facts. Were you present at the time the deceased met his death? Told you I was. And those two cops pushed Tom out of the window. Where were you at the time the deceased was pushed or jumped from the window? Jack and I just left the union hall. We were going out the front door when it happened. What attracted your attention? I heard him scream. When I looked up, Tom was falling. That cop was standing at the window watching him. Did you see the officer push him? Yes, I saw him. Did I understand you to say you were on the street outside the building at the time? Yeah. And you saw the officers push the deceased from the window on the seventh floor from your vantage point? Yeah. Isn't it true that that's a physical impossibility? What is? That you could have seen what you testified to from where you were standing. I know they pushed it. You know or you saw? I know that's all. Tom wouldn't jump out of a window. Then it's true... You didn't see the officers push the deceased out of the window? No, I didn't see them. Is there anything further you'd like to add? They must have pushed them. Any question from the jury? That's all, Garfield. Step down. Dorothy River. Raise your right hand. Yes, do you solemnly swear that the testimony you're about to give to be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help you, God? I do. Be seated. State your name. Dorothy River. What is your address? 211 South Beverly Drive. And what is your occupation? I'm a stenographer at the Teamsters Union Hall. Were you present the morning the deceased met his death? I was. State where you were and what you were doing. I was in our office on the seventh floor doing some filing. Please state what you witnessed. The filing cabinet in our office is by the door. The office faces on the hallway and the door happened to be open. I heard a commotion and looked out. I saw those two officers struggling with the man. Did you hear any conversation? Yes. I heard that officer there say, Get back here, get back. The man outside the window yelled, Let me go, let me go. This officer here, Officer Friday, said, he's pulling me out. Hold on, Ben, grab me. How far from the window were you? I'd say about 15 feet. Do you have anything else to add? Yes. As the two policemen started downstairs, Officer Friday said to me, call an ambulance, there's been an accident. Thank you, Miss River. Those officers didn't push that man out the window. They were trying to hold him. After hearing additional witnesses, the coroner's jury retired at 11.57 a.m. Eight minutes later, they returned with their decision. The deceased met his death voluntarily and by his own actions. The homicide detail continued the investigation of Laval's death. A week went by. With homicide working one side, we hoped that they might turn up additional leads in the hijacking case. Nothing turned up. It seemed that with the death of Thomas Laval, our leads came to an abrupt stop. On Tuesday morning, March 16th at 9 a.m., we got a call from Chief of Detectives Ed Backstrand. Now, once more, what about the way bills on these shipments? 
You checked them? Everything we could. Talk to everybody and handle them. And talk to him some more. $42,000 in merchandise doesn't just disappear. Now, who's the last one to handle those wave bills? The warehouse Yippenfler. The bills were signed and stamped two hours after he filed them in his desk. They disappeared. What about the truck drivers? You checked them out? Talked to all of them. Nothing so far. Nothing was missing from those shipments until they left the warehouse. Is that right? Yeah. And somewhere in between the warehouse and the delivery points, $42,000 worth of goods disappeared. Somebody's got to be hijacking those loads. We know that. But how do we get to it? Maybe they're working alone. Maybe they're working with the truck drivers. It's one of the others. Got to be. Just hadn't lost Laval. Well, you lost him. That doesn't close the case. You got a suggestion? Yeah, I got a suggestion. Crack it. You are listening to Dragnet, authentic stories from official police files. And now, an important announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, we are pleased to announce that starting next Thursday, October 6th, Dragnet will be brought to you by Fatima Cigarettes. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank you, the listener, for your excellent response to our efforts in bringing you these weekly authentic presentations of actual cases from official files. Your letters are the only indications we have that Dragnet is a source of your listening pleasure. We'd like to hear from all of you. Starting next Thursday, October 6th, over most of these same NBC stations, Dragnet will be heard weekly at 10.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, immediately following the Supper Club. Check your newspaper for local release time. We stayed on the job. Another week went by. No leads. We spent so much time at the general warehouse where the merchandise disappeared that we almost got to be a part of the crew. We got to know everybody. We made frequent visits to the Teamsters Union Hall. It got us nothing. On Wednesday, March 26th, we reported in for work at 8 a.m. Friday, Romero. Yes, Skipper? You fooled around just long enough. They hijacked another load last night. $38,000. What outfit? Same. General warehouse. Who's your contact down there? Ray Hobart, shipping clerk. Hop down there right now and get the details. Right, Ed. There are two ways to solve this thing. Yeah? You can get those hijackers now or wait till General Warehouse goes out of business. Get on it. Hobart, who was the shipping clerk on duty last night? I was. Uh, working for Siggy. Siegelmeister. He's out of the cold. And you saw the stuff was loaded on the trucks and you checked the way bill. Yeah, as usual. Everything as usual. Uh, checked the trucks out at 2 a.m., went back to the office, filed the way bills. You work a pretty heavy schedule, Hobart. You started at 2 a.m. and you're still on duty? Oh, it took the last four hours of Siggy's shift at 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. He had a cold. I was back here at 10 this morning to start my own shift. When did you find out the way bills were missing on that shipment last night? Oh, uh, just before I went off. Maybe uh, half past five, quarter to six. Well, how about the truck drivers who handled that load, Hobart? You got them? Uh, let's see. I got it right here. Okay. Uh, here you go, Sergeant. Uh... Jack Morris and Pete Garfield. Jack Morris and Pete Garfield were brought in for questioning. We double-checked with Homicide and found that their reports on Morris and Garfield tallied with ours. No previous records. Both men had been tailed for a reasonable length of time since their testimony at the Laval inquest. Their actions failed to implicate them. Four days after the second hijacking, we got a tip from one of our informants down in the warehouse district. He told us that a man in a gray suit had been hanging around the coffee shop next to the Teamsters Union Hall. He was peddling nylon stockings, cheap. There had been other reports like this, which we had followed up, but none of them had paid off. Usually such leads didn't pay off, but we couldn't be sure. They had to be checked. 
And a few minutes before five that afternoon, we found the nylon salesman in the gray suit in the back booth of the coffee shop adjoining the union hall. Look, Meg. Take a look. We'll find it. You can't do better. 51-gauge nylon. Look good, huh? Mm, sure do, don't you, Joe? Yeah, they do. We've been looking for you, Max. Some of the guys in the union hall said that you'd be around. Sure, I saw lots of these around the hall. Truck drivers, just like you, buying them like crazy. Good deal. Sure looks like it, man. How many pairs can we have? Many as you want. Four bits a pair, you name it. You got a couple of dozen for us? A couple of dozen? Mm-hmm. No, not on me, but I can get them. Many as you want. Well, we're kind of in a hurry. Can you get them for us fast? A couple of dozen. Better make it three dozen, huh, Joe? Yeah, if you want. Three dozen. Can you get them now? couple of hours I can get them. Same quality. Want to meet me here? Oh, I don't know. We wanted them for tonight. My wife's birthday, you know. Well, maybe an hour and a half. How's that? Three dozen, meet you here. Oh, look, Mac, uh, maybe we're both heading the same direction. Can't we go with you and pick up the nylon? Save time for all of it. Uh, no, I don't think so. No. Can't you wait? Hour and a half? How's that? Never find a better buy. I'm sorry, Mac. I wish we had the time. Well, where do you have to go to pick up these nylons? Oh, way out. Sunset Boulevard near Fairfax. Can't you wait? I'll make it fast. Well, can't we pay you and then go out and pick them up ourselves? Huh? No. Don't work that way. No. Can't you wait here? I'll make it fast. Well, we ought to be home now, Joe. Yeah, I'm sorry, mister. We'll have to skip it. Yeah, maybe we can pick up something on the way home, Ben. Candy or something. Wife likes candy. Now, uh, look, fellas, I, I don't want to see you lose out on this deal. I'll meet you halfway. How do you mean? Uh, look... Together, we'll go out to Sunset and Fairfax, huh? Near the place. You wait there at the hamburger stand. And in five minutes, I'll bring you the stuff, okay? Oh, I don't know. We're late already, but... All right, it's a deal. I'll call the wife and tell her we're going to be a little later. Three dozen, is that right? Three dozen of the best. You can't do better. All right, I'll be back in just a minute. Two five two three. Chief of Detectives Office, Chandler. Mike, Joe Friday, backstrand there. Out right now, Joe. Well, then do me a favor, Chandler. Make it fast. Get a couple of men out to Sunset and Fairfax as fast as you can. Tell them to watch for Ben and me. You got that? Yeah. What else? We'll drive up in our car with another man. Ben and I'll get out of the car and go in the hamburger stand. The other man will walk off. Whoever you get, tell him to follow that man. You got it? Right. All right. Just tail him. See where he goes. See what he does. Okay, Joe. Right away. All set, Joe? She got dinner ready? Yeah, just about. We better hustle. Sure. Best deal in the world. Let's go. At five minutes to six, we pulled up at the corner of Sunset Boulevard in Fairfax. It was almost dark. Ben and I got out of the car and started over for the hamburger stand on the corner. We caught a glimpse of Barcy and Kaplan in one of our detective cars parked in a gas station on the opposite corner. They had their eyes on our man. When the traffic signals changed, the man crossed the street and headed down Fairfax. Barcy and Kaplan waited a minute, and then they took off after him. He turned at the next corner and disappeared from sight. Ben and I ordered a cup of coffee, and we sat down to wait. At half past six, we were still waiting. At five minutes to seven, I went across the street to the drugstore and called the office. Barcy and Kaplan hadn't been heard from. Their car, 105K, was not acknowledging calls. I had my call switched from communications to Backstrand's office. Well, they lost him, Friday. I don't know how they lost him, but they lost him. Well, who's out there now? Sullivan and Whitney took a detail out there. They're combing the neighborhood right now. Well, how did it happen? A man just doesn't disappear into thin air. That's what I keep telling you about that stuff that's been hijacked. The search for the nylon salesman went on all that night and most of the next day. 
From his description, we ran a make on him. No previous record. He had disappeared completely. We were right back where we'd started from. The only thing we could do was to start backtracking, re-questioning the people at General Warehouse, the truck drivers, the shipping clerks. We kept a close check on Garfield and Morris, and and we went back to the only possible lead still remaining, Mrs. Laval. She could tell us nothing more than we already knew. When we left her, we started on the neighbors for the second time around. For the rest of the day, we canvassed the immediate neighborhood. We got as many opinions of the Lavals as they had neighbors. At 3.30 that afternoon, we visited with Miss Gertrude Langster, a 50-year-old maiden lady who lived almost directly across the street from the Laval house. She'd been out of town the first time we covered the neighborhood. The old saying goes, Sergeant, there's no fool like an old fool. Oh, say, if I told you the chances I had when I was a girl... Yeah, but we just... Oh, not a... truck drivers like that. Laval man, God rest his soul. But fine, wealthy men, bankers, well, you... lawyers... Templeton Grant, you remember him? No, ma'am. I was engaged to him once. Butterfly waist. That's what he used to call me. I was slim in those days. Would you like to see some pictures of me as a girl? No, no thank you, ma'am. We'd just like to ask you a few questions, that's all. Could you tell us if the Lavals had many visitors to their house in the past six months or so? Oh, my no. Funniest thing, I am the nosy type, Sergeant. I like to know everything that goes on around my neighborhood. And you can take my word for it, the Lavals never had visitors. You know, Sergeant Friday, you remind me of a young man I used to be engaged to just a few years ago. Yes, Miss so- Langston. Now, would you tell us, please, uh, did you have any reason to think that there was something a little out of the ordinary about the Laval? Oh, little out of the ordinary, he says. But my dear man, yes. Here he was, a truck driver, and there she was with a home furnished like the Astors. Why, I even used to see him cart some of the things home in that car. He has beautiful things, rugs and glassware, bolts of fabric. Oh, gorgeous. And he'd bring these things home after work. Is that it, Miss oh, Langston? Anytime, anytime. Day or night, weekends, anytime. Mm-hmm. After four, Joe, we better call office. Yeah. Now, are you sure of all that you've told us, Miss Langston? Sure. Oh, my dear man, of course I'm sure I watched him week after week. Well, thank well, you. Uh, won't you stay for a cup of tea? I'll have Josephine fix it. Josephine? Uh, no, thank you, ma'am. Well, then, uh, perhaps a glass of sherry? Thank you, no. But there is something. Yes? I wonder if we could use your phone, please. Oh, uh, yes. In the hall, next to the umbrella stand. Thank you, ma'am. City Hall. 2523. 2523. Thanks, Trent. Friday, Ed. Nothing much here. Well, there's something here. and Kaplan just called. Pete Garfield left his house half an hour ago. Then he picked up Morris. What's so unusual about that? Nothing except the guy driving the car is the little man in the gray suit, the nylon salesman. Barcy and Kaplan are tailing him. Where are they now? Headed north out Riverside Drive. There's nothing out there but a golf course and a lot of riding stables. I don't care what they do for recreation. Go get them. With red light and siren, it took us 12 minutes to pick up Barcy and Kaplan on Riverside Drive. At 4.23 p.m., we pulled up in front of the Blue Pony Riding Stables. Barcy and Kaplan's car was overturned just beyond the driveway leading up to the Riding Academy. Kaplan's hurt. I called an ambulance. They rammed us. What kind of a car are they in? They Swiss. They're driving a 12-ton bulldog semi. Which way'd they head? Going north. Got a three-minute lead on you. Pneumatic commercial. Adam 653. Let's go, Ben. Can you see him, Joe? No, not yet. Watch that crossing. Up ahead, Joe. That's a semi. Can you read it? Wait a minute. Adam 653, at them. Took a ride on Lancashire. Don't lose them. They're pushing that semi too hard. Look at that trailer sway. They'll have to stay on Lancashire. They're going too fast to turn now. Traffic's closing in up ahead of them. They better not turn. That's what they're doing. 
Look at that trailer whip. They're going over. Look at that star front. Come on, Ben. You all right? Wait a minute. Let me see. Yeah, they're banged up, but they're alive. There they are, Joe. Yeah. Garfield, Morris, little man in the grace of... It's funny, isn't it? What's that? Garfield's going to swear we pushed that truck through that window. The story you have just heard is true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. Peter Garfield, Jack Morris, and John Dolfo, the stocking salesman, were hospitalized and later brought to trial. They were convicted on charges of grand theft and received sentences as prescribed by law. They are now serving their terms in the state penitentiary. You have just heard the 18th in a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of acting chief of police, W.A. Wharton, Los Angeles Police Department. Tonight's program is dedicated to motorcycle officer Elmer Forsman of the Fresno, California Police Department, who on the afternoon of October 6th, 1946, gave his life so that yours might be more secure. Dragnet came to you from Los Angeles. Judy Canova joins the star lineup of Saturday shows tonight on NBC. Dragnet. An episode from the first week of autumn in 1949 and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. Especially in March, Women's History Month, we try to play some of the dramatic radio series that featured female protagonists. There weren't a great many of them, but one of the best starred Mercedes McCambridge in the title role. Ms. McCambridge was not only an Oscar-winning film actor, Orson Welles once called her the world's greatest living radio actress. But her most famous vocal performance actually came in a movie, in 1974's The Exorcist, for which Ms. McCambridge provided the voice of the devil. We're going to hear her in an episode of her own series, broadcast for a season on ABC. If you've ever wondered about what else Rex Corey composed, besides the music in Gunsmoke, well, listen up. From August 17, 1951, and with, we're pretty sure, an Anglo actor doing a Latino voice, it's Mercedes McCambridge starring in Defense Attorney. Ladies and gentlemen, to depend upon your judgment and to fulfill my own obligation, I submit the facts, fully aware of my responsibility to my client and to you as defense attorney. The American Broadcasting Company presents Miss Mercedes McCambridge in Defense Attorney. When Martha Ellis Bryant chose law as a career, she accepted the challenge of defending the defenseless. (laughs) 
Peter Lynch was one of the defenseless, the object of a citywide manhunt. But it's been 48 hours since that policeman was killed, Judd. What makes them so certain that Peter Lynch is still in town? The whole town's been staked out since the shooting, Marty. He couldn't get through the roadblocks if he buried himself in a trash truck. I can't see why they're concentrating on Lynch. Anybody could have killed Officer Mertens. There were no eyewitnesses. Do you think the DA's going to need eyewitnesses in this case? He's going to need some evidence. Juries don't convict on suspicion. Honey, I know your legal mind and how it works, but face the facts. Oh, I will, if you tell me what they are. All right. Two days ago at 3 a.m., Officer Mertens rang his precinct from a call box on his beat, right? So your newspaper says. Marty, I took the story right from police record. Oh, all right. Go ahead. Well, the desk sergeant says Mertens called for a patrol wagon to bring in a prisoner. And Mertens said the prisoner was Peter Lynch. But ten minutes later, when the wagon got to the call box, Mertens was lying there dead. Lynch was gone. All of which is entirely circumstantial, Judd Boy. Oh, Marty, be reasonable. Lynch was an ex-con, fresh out of state prison on parole. Parolees have a ten o'clock curfew. Now, what was he doing on the streets at 3 a.m.? Well, not necessarily committing murder. Not the same day he got out of jail. That's your theory. But the D.A. will point out that the murdered policeman is the same policeman who sent Lynch to jail three years ago. But, Judd, can't you see that that doesn't prove anything? All right, Marty, then tell me, where is Lynch? Why did he run? Why is he hiding? I don't know. Any more than the police know what happened during those ten minutes. Between the time Officer Mertens called the patrol wagon and the time that he was found dead. Well, that isn't hard to guess. Your guessing isn't knowing, Judd. All right, Counselor, tell you what. I'll give you a chance to convince me tonight by moonlight. <laughs> because by moonlight, I know a way to stop you from arguing. Not unless you see a barber about a shave. When I kiss you, I feel like I was engaged to an Airedale. Well, that's because you treat me like a dog. Oh. <laughs> Look, would you turn right here? I want to go to my office, not yours. Uh, oh, forgot. Okay. How about tonight? Is it a date? Why don't you call me later and coax me? Mental cruelty, that's what it is. Even an Airedale deserves... Hey, Judd, look at that. Hey, crowd gathering in front of your building. Mm -hmm. Police squad cars. They're roping the area off. Keep everybody back behind those ropes. Carson, cut the traffic off at State Street. Yes, Lieutenant, leave us, Marty. Hey, Ed. Ed, I'll stay back there behind... Oh, hi, Judd, hi. My press pass good for this rope? All right, come on, slide on the... It's all right, Manning. He's a newspaper man. Come on, Marty. Hi, Lieutenant. Oh, morning, Miss Bryant. What cook's here, Ed? We got the building staked out. Somebody inside we want to talk to. Now, take that squad across the street, Joe, will you? All right. Go to the roof, keep the building covered from all angles. Lieutenant, who's in there? Peter Lynch. Oh, brother. Am I glad I picked you up, Marty. Where is he, Ed? Don't know. Got men working up and down, floor by floor. <laughs> ah! Hey, look, somebody smashed a window up there. Yeah. Judd, there's a man climbing uh, off. Eight, eight, eight floor. He's on the ledge now. Eighth floor? That's Lynch. Judd, that's my office. Lynch! Hey, please keep quiet, you people, will you? Lynch! Can you hear me? I hear you. Get everybody away. Call your men off, Lieutenant, or I'll jump. I'm warning you, Lynch. Give up. I told you what I want. And I want you. I'm coming up to get you. I want to go up, too, Ed. Your life, come on, through the main entrance. Here. I'm coming, too. Oh, no, you don't, Marty. Ah, no, sorry, Miss Bryant. No, Bryan. wait a minute. That was my office. He might have been in there to see me. Look, he can see you, Miss Bryant, after we take him into custody. If he doesn't jump first. Lieutenant, if he did want to see me, I may be the only one who can get him in off that ledge. If Lynch wants to jump, that's up to him. He won't be any deader than the man he shot. The man you think he shot. You think he murdered a policeman. Suppose he didn't. Suppose he jumps and it turns out later that he was innocent. Judd, what would your paper say about that? Yeah, she's right, Ed. They'd say that he jumped through fear of police brutality. You know me better than that, Judd. 
It'd be treated like any other prisoner. Yeah, we know, Lieutenant, but the people out in the street don't know. They'll believe what they read. All right, you win, Miss Bright. Come on. Yeah. This way, Lieutenant. Where are you men, Sergeant? I sent them up the ninth floor to see if a rope squad can do any good. I doubt it, though. Cornish juts out too far. He climbed up from that office, didn't he? Yes, ma'am. 803, law office. Name's on the door of Martha Ellis Bryant. This is Miss Bryant, Sergeant. Oh. Well, then you're the one he wants to see. Did he say that? Yeah, Lieutenant. Oh. Is he armed? We don't know. I poked my head out the window once. He threatened to jump unless I pulled all our men off this floor. Well, let me talk to him. Yeah, don't let her do it. Suppose he is armed. The rifle squad has him covered in the roof across the street. Uh, you get to a phone in some office down the hall, Sergeant, will you? Get over there and alert them, huh? Yes, sir. All right, Miss Bryant. Judd, come on. Who's in there? Who came into that office? It's Lieutenant Labus, Lynch. Don't try to come out here, Lieutenant. Stay away from the window. This ledge is only 18 inches wide. They'll never get me. I'll jump. No, don't. Don't. Look, we want to help you. Who's that? It's Martha Ellis Bryant, Lynch. Get everybody out of there, Miss Bryant. I want to talk to you. If they don't let me talk to you alone, I swear I'm going to jump. Please, Lieutenant, can't you see that he means it? He has no reason to harm me. Well, all right, Miss Bryant, he's all yours. Yeah, you leave too, Judge. Marty, I... No, no, please, no. All right. All right, they've gone, Lynch. Now, why don't you come in? I'll lock the door and, and, and we can talk. I, I can talk from here. Miss Bryant, I didn't shoot that cop. Well, then why don't you give yourself up and give us a chance to prove that you no. did? Why not? I can't, that's all. Lynch, don't you see? They'll please, probably... Please listen to me. You don't know what it's like to be locked up. I do. For three years. You know what the greatest thing in the world is, Miss Bryant? It's a doorknob. What? Yeah, a cheap two-bit doorknob you can buy in any hardware store. Because you can turn it. You can use it to open and close the door. Go anywhere you want, whenever you want. Lynch, I know how you feel, but... No, you, you don't. You'll never know. When I left the pen, I swore I'd never go back. I'd rather die. Well, why don't you come inside, and we can talk. Well, I can talk from here. All right. Lynch, why did you run away when Officer Mertens was shot? I didn't even know he was shot. Not until I saw it in the papers the next morning and found out they were looking for me. Well, he called the precinct house and told them that he'd arrested you for parole violation. That's a lie! He didn't arrest me! Did you see him the night he was killed? Lynch, did you? Yeah, I, I saw him. And we just talked. He didn't arrest me and I didn't kill him. What did happen? Well, it was my first night out of the pen. Couldn't sleep. I... I was free. I just wanted to walk around. About 1 a.m., I, I got up, got dressed and went out. Where? Oh, place in particular, just... Wherever my feet wanted to take me, it felt good. Oh, you'll never know how good. Yes, Lynch, go on, dear. 
I saw him about 2.30, it must have been. I was walking down by the factory district. Quiet. Nobody around. I was just walking, breathing fresh air, and knowing there weren't any walls. Hey, you wait a minute. Just stand there and keep your arms at your sides. I'm not doing anything, officer. Turn around and let me frisk you. All right. Now let's have a look at your face. Well, Peter Lynch, isn't it? Yes. Remember me? I remember you. Armed robbery, wasn't it? Yes. When did you get out? Yesterday. Thought you pulled five years. I, I served three. I, I'm doing the rest on parole. Your parole officer forget to tell you about the 10 o'clock curfew? No, he told me. Being out at this hour is a violation. You know that, don't you? Please, Officer Mertens. I'm not doing anything wrong. Please believe me. Better tell me what you're doing around here. Just walking. Uh, walking? After three years, I, I couldn't sleep. I just came out to walk. That's all. Can't you understand that? I don't want anything except just the right to walk. Learned your lesson, huh, boy? I've learned. No more trouble, huh? Not as long as I live, believe me. According to the book, I should pull you in. Please, j just give me a chance. I'll go right home. I got a room over on Take Benton it Street. easy, boy. I, I, I think you're on the level. I am. I am. Got a job? No, not, not yet. Bakery needs night loaders. Maybe I could talk to somebody. Would you? Would you for me? A man who's working nights can't get into trouble nights. It's only 40 bucks a week. You used to have bigger plans than that. That was before I found out how much a doorknob's worth. Huh? Just a private joke. I'll talk to the night boss when I go around the block on my way to ring in. Go ahead, boy. Finish your walk. Mertens. You're... Not a bad guy. I don't think you are either. Not anymore. Uh, buenas noches, senor. Oh, hello, Diaz. How's business tonight? <laughs> business? <laughs> I do all my business in the day at the lunch stand. The winos around here would be surprised to hear that. You'd better stop peddling that homemade tequila. Maybe, senor, you better stop saying things you can't prove. You have the vice squad raid my stand three times. No evidence. Yeah, that's right, Diaz. And we both know why, don't we? Another couple of days and we'll know for sure. See, si. see, si, maybe we all learn a lot soon. Good night, senor cop. You're lucky in a way, Lynch. You've learned your lesson. That baby still has his coming. Well, I can have it. Got any dough? Fifty bucks. Uh, compliments of the state. It'll hold me until I start loading bakery trucks. I think that'll be soon. Oh, thanks. Good night. Good night, Lynch. Enjoy your walk. I'm glad you came out clean. Cop on a beat has to pinch a lot of guys. And it's nice to meet one who came out And that was the last I saw of him. That was all, Miss Bryant. That was all is the truth. All right, Lynch. Even you don't believe me, do you? Well, it doesn't fit with other statements, Lynch. It's all true. Well, then what are you afraid of? Why don't you come no, in? No, Miss Bryant. 
Look, you've been running for more than 48 hours. You're very tired. That ledge is less than two feet Finished wide. stories above the ground. But I'm staying here, Miss Bryant, until they know I didn't shoot Mertens or until... Well, like you said, I'm tired. Well, I'll do what I can, Lynch. And I'll be back as soon as I can. I'll be here, Miss Bryant. Here or down there. So that's his story, huh? That's it, Lieutenant. It's pretty flimsy, Marty. No, not entirely, Judd. Lieutenant, what do you know about this Diaz? Well, he does run a lunch stand in the factory district. Mm-hmm. Does he sell tequila on the side? Mertens thought so. We checked the whole ninth floor, Lieutenant. Oh, good, Sergeant. Any chance of dropping a rope on him? No, unless he comes in of his own free will, we can't get at him. No. Lieutenant, did Mertens ever arrest Diaz for bootlegging? Uh, no, no. He never caught him in possession of any of the stuff without stamps. Well, then why the vice squad raids? Well, they made their raids on the basis of Mertens' reports. He was just a beat cop. Beat cops don't handle raids like that. Vice squad boys take over and move in with warrants. What are you getting at, Marty? The grand jury's in session, Judge. Your paper carried a story last week. Do you remember what they're investigating? Yeah. That's right, Ed. They're investigating the vice squad. Yeah, I know that. Few men on the squad have been suspended because of the investigation. On what grounds? They've been suspected of tipping off gambling houses before raids so the operators could get equipment out of the way. Couldn't somebody have been tipping off Diaz the same way, giving him a chance to hide his bootleg tequila before it was found? You, uh, trying to put me on a spot, Miss Bryant? Well, let's face it, Ed. Some cops aren't as honest as you are. How about it? (sighs) Okay, it's a possibility. There must be something to it or the grand jury wouldn't be so hot about it. Where have they been getting their testimony? Patrolmen who've supplied information on vice activities. Cases where the vice squad didn't seem to be able to make the arrest stick. Was Officer Mertens ever subpoenaed to testify? Well, yeah, yeah, he had a subpoena returnable next week. What, what's that got to do with Lynch? It's a matter of motive, Lieutenant. Why do you think Lynch killed Officer Mertens? Because Mertens sent him to jail three years ago. All right, that's one suspect and one motive. But Lynch isn't the only one with a motive. What do you mean? I mean, maybe somebody else wanted to get rid of Officer Mertens before he went before that grand jury. Ed, she's got something there. All right, I'd I'd go with it, except for one thing. Lynch tells a very phony story. No, not altogether, Lieutenant. We've just proven that part of it was true. And we know part of it is a lie. After all, Mertens did ring into the precinct house and call for a wagon to bring Lynch in. I'd like to talk to the desk sergeant who took that call. Well, that won't be hard to do, Miss Bryant. I took that call. I was on the desk that, that night. Are you sure it was Officer Mertens who called you, Sergeant? Yeah. Hmm? Well, yeah, I'm sure. Well, you don't sound sure, Sergeant. Well, I, I never thought of it until now, Lieutenant. Uh, I mean, when the call came through, you said it was Mertens. Didn't you recognize the voice? Well, tell the truth, Mr. Barnes, I've only been on the desk for a couple of weeks. Yeah, and he's only been in the Midtown Precinct for ten days. We got more than 50 men checking in each night, Miss Bryant. I couldn't recognize all their voices. Can't even name them all by sight yet. Then somebody else could have made that call and used Merton's name. I suppose so, only you... Only what, Sergeant? Well, well, only a cop would know how to make that call. I can't explain it, but... Well, I know I spoke to a cop. There's a certain way you call in. Not just anybody could pick up a call box phone and ring in without me spotting them. Maybe you're right, Sergeant. Maybe it was a cop. 
But not Officer Mertens, because I've got a feeling that Officer Mertens was already dead when that call was made. Well, whoever did that would be taking an awful chance, Miss Bryant. Not if he knew there was a new desk sergeant, Lieutenant, and especially not if he knew that Lynch was around, too. That phone call is the only bit of direct evidence you have against Lynch. And the sergeant just admitted that he can't swear it was Mertens who phoned in from the call box. Well, then why doesn't Lynch give himself up and stand trial? I've got a better question than that. If Lynch is the killer, why hasn't he got a gun? How do you know he hasn't got it? Because he's standing on a ledge eight stories high where he can't hurt anybody but himself. If he was guilty and if he had a gun, he'd be using it to fight his way out. That is what a killer would do, isn't it? Miss Bryan, an innocent man doesn't resist arrest. Lieutenant, he's arrested himself. That ledge is narrower than any cell will ever be. And he can't move out there. Peter Lynch is his own judge and jury, and if we can't prove he's innocent and prove it fast, he may be his own executioner. All right, all right. What, what do you want? I want all the evidence we can get, and as quickly as we can get it. I want to talk to that man, that Diaz, who saw Lynch and Mertens together. Judd, I want you to check that bakery, the night foreman, see if Officer Merton stopped by there and asked about a job for Lynch. That would back up his story, all right, Ed. Look, isn't there some little thing that I could do? After all, Miss Bryant, I am a member of the police force. And the only one who can get the other information we need, Lieutenant. Yeah, I'd like you to find out which members of the vice squad have been suspended. And then check that list and find out if anybody on it was in on the raids made on Diaz's stand. All right, I'll have to go through records. Take a little time. Make it as little as possible, Lieutenant, because for Peter Lynch, time is running out. I never seen you around here before. You don't look like no factory girl to me. No, I'm not. I'm a secretary. Gee, I see by the paper that they trapped the man who shot the policeman the other night. Yeah, yeah. I hear about it before in the radio. Mm-hmm. That shooting happened right near here, didn't it? See, see up on the corner. Yeah. Now, I, I just miss seeing that, you know. Oh, what do you mean you just missed it? Well, I passed him on the street that night, the policeman and the man who killed him. Oh, I see. Uh, the policeman, he was arresting this, uh, this Peter Lynch. He took him away up to the box there to call a patrol wagon, you know? You saw that? Oh, see, see. They passed me not five feet away. Oh, I didn't see anything about that in the papers. Did you tell the police about that? Why? They know who done it. I mind my own business. Uh-huh. And this is your only business? My business is my own. Do you want something else? No. No, that's all. Gracias, senorita. You come back again, eh? I may. Very soon. Party! John? Oh, golly, where have you been? Jump in. All right. I had a drive out to the night foreman's house. He had no phone. Did he back Lynch up? Did Mertens ask about a job for Lynch? No. Ah, oh, Judd. Now, let me finish, honey. The foreman went home early that night. His, his kid was sick or something. But some of the loaders did say that Mertens stopped by looking for him. Oh, did he tell the loaders why? No, I'm afraid he didn't. But the fact that Mertens did stop by gives some credence to the story Lynch told. Not enough. Not after what I just heard from Diaz. Oh, what's his story? He says Mertens had Lynch under arrest. You think he's lying? I don't know. Judd, are there any reports on Lynch? Have you had the car radio on? A few minutes ago. Looks bad, Marty. He almost fell. I guess Liebus is our only hope now. All he'll have is a list of names. That won't help. Unless we can tie one of them in with something concrete. Then it better be soon. Lynch can't last much longer. No. Judd, stop the car. Well, sure. 
What's the matter? I gotta find out who's lying, Diaz or Lynch. I want you to go back to Diaz's lunch stand. What for? To see if you can trap him. If I flash a press card at him, he'll clam right up. No, Marty. you're not going to. You you leave me in the car on the corner and you go in alone. And do what? Try to shake him down for some money. <laughs> what? No, I don't mean what it sounds like. Here's what I want you to do. You go back to the stand and go in as Oh, I'm sorry, but lunch hour is over, senor. Only sandwiches. Man. I don't want anything to eat. I just want to talk to you. You alone? <laughs> si, si. If you got anything around here you shouldn't have, get rid of it before tonight. What? No comprendo, senor. Don't play dumb. I'm talking about tequila. And keep the winos away from here after dark. <laughs> I think you got the wrong place. Will you shut up and listen to me? Just do what I told you. You're going to be raided again. I had to come to warn you because the cops don't know me. When friends want to tell me something, they call on the telephone, senor, right there. When your friends are being watched, they can't use a phone. Now I told you what's coming. Fork over. Let's have the dough. What are you talking about? You don't think this information is free, do you? From now on, it is, senor. You sound like you're getting tough. Your friend isn't going to like that. He don't have to like that. You give senor Vanda a message. Tell him if he does anything I want him to do, and free. Because if senor Vanda does not protect me, I don't protect him. You mean you'll spill what you know about that cop getting killed? You're getting pretty bright, senor. Now get out of here. Sure it is. And I'll give Vanda your message. But I don't think he's going to like it. As a matter of fact, I can guarantee he won't like it. Lieber, leave us get here. Give him time, Marty. He is still at his stand. I can see him through the window down there. Well, stay back in the doorway. Don't let him see you. As soon as I mentioned the name Vanda, Liebus went sky high. Is Vanda one of the vice squad men under suspension? He sure is, honey. And he's taken part in all the raids made on Diaz. He must have tipped him. And Mertens must have found out about it. Hey, hey, somebody's going into the stand now. Good, that'll keep Diaz busy until the lieutenant gets here. Liebus is bringing a search warrant. If he finds any tequila in that place, he can haul Diaz in. And if he does, I think he'll talk. Try to deal his way out. Hey, that looks like the lieutenant's car now. Just turn the corner up there. Yeah. Yeah, and the sergeant's with him. Yeah, they see us. Good. Everything all right, Judd? Miss Bryant? It's fine, now that you're here. Diaz is still at the stand, and he hasn't moved anything out. Our customer just went in a minute ago, so he's probably busy. Good, good. Sergeant, you take the card and rides with the alley. Cover the rear of the place. I'll walk down. Yes, sir. And don't let him run. I'll stop if he comes my way. Right. I'll give him a minute to get the back of the place covered. Lieutenant House Lynch. He's getting weak. Hope we get something out of Diaz fast. I tried to put a tail on Vanda, but he left his house in a hurry just before my men got there. I got it in the radio division while we were driving down here. Why would he run out like that? Well, I don't know. Well, let... Judd, you said there was a phone in that lunch stand? Yeah. You think Diaz might have called Vanda after you left? He did go to the telephone once, Judd. He might have. Hey. Uh, stand. Stay here, Marty. No, Judd, I would Get back, Miss Bryant. Man's no. coming out, Ed, the customer. Customer nothing, that's Vanna. Stop, Vanna! That's the sergeant. We got a bottle. Duck into a doorway and flatten out. Huh. Come on, Viano's crates, Vanna. It's Lieutenant Levis. Don't make me kill you, Harry. Don't make me kill you, Ed. Vanna, you're trapped. Lieutenant, I'll make a deal. Not with me. Not with a gun in your hand. You can't see me behind these crates, but I can see that girl. 
Drop your gun and take a walk or she gets it. Marty, get in that doorway. Get in the doorway. Full flat. Right. You hit him, Lieutenant. I'll kill you. John, the Lieutenant's hit. Yeah. Ed. Ed. Uh, Mal. It's all right, Jed. In the side, flesh wound. Take a look at him, Sergeant, will you? Doesn't need much looking, sir. He's dead. What about Diaz? Vanda shot him just as I came up behind the place. He was emptying the cash register when I started to break in through the back door. Oh, the cash register? Yeah, I think that adds up, Miss Bryant. I want to make it look like a robbery killing. He didn't know we were around. You mean Vanda was trying to eliminate the one witness who knew that he'd killed Merton? Uh, that's my theory, unless you've got a better one. Diaz must have called Vanda to check on Judd's visit, and Vanda realized he talked too much. Ed, we got to get you to a hospital. Uh, Sergeant can take me. Look, you two, you better get going. Lynch can't stand that ledge forever, you know. We can put through a radio call, have the man tell him he's clear. Will you quickly? No good, Miss Bryan. He won't believe anybody but you. Judd, get her there fast. It's not a trap, is it, Miss Bryan? No, Lynch, it isn't a trap. All the policemen have left the building. What about the ones down on the street? They'll leave just as soon as you come inside. Who's the man in there with you? I heard a man when you came in. It's Judd Barnes. He's a newspaper reporter. He helped prove that you were innocent. That's right, Lynch. Here, let me give you a hand. Come on. All right. Kind of weak and dizzy. Judd, Judd, right hand, Judd. Grab it. All right, Artie. I've got him. Now help me pull him in. Uh, there. It's all right. It's all right, Lynch. You're safe now. It was a long way down there to the street. I, I didn't want to die, but I couldn't ever stand being locked up again. You're okay now, fella. <laughs> now, how about coming with us? We'll get you a stiff drink and something to eat. No. I don't want anything. I just want to be able to open that door and go. All right, Lynch. Nobody will stop you. Thanks. I... That's all I can say. Thanks. Thank you. Judd. Hmm? You know how much a doorknob is worth? What do you mean? It's a private joke between ex-convicts and defense attorneys. No. Let me. just heard Defense Attorney starring Mercedes McCambridge with Howard Culver as Judd. Tonight, you heard Bill Tracy as Lynch, Charles Seal as Vanda, Tony Barrett as Diaz, and Barney Phillips as the sergeant. Music was composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Defense Attorney was written by Joel Murcott. The program is directed by Dwight Hauser. Mercedes McCambridge in Defense Attorney from the summer of 1951 and from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. You learn so many 
little facts when you listen to old-time radio. For instance, we know tax time is upon us. Our returns are due in about six weeks. But if this were 1952, our taxes would be due in about 10 days. It wasn't until 1955 that April 15th became tax day. Before then, it was March 15th. Before that, it had been March 1st. And before that, there was no income tax. I mention this because as you're gathering your receipts, your W-2s and your 1099s, you can give a listen to Jack Benny's encounter with the IRS in 1952. In addition to the usual gang, including Eddie Anderson in the stereotypical servant's role of Rochester, there are all kinds of references in the show we're about to hear to the Yiddish-accented character in Mr. Benny's troupe, Mr. Kitzel, the Irish tenor, Morton Downey Sr., the beautiful Hollywood actor and inventor, Hedy Lamar, the terrible mudslides that then, as now, threatened homes in Southern California, the Santa Anita horse racing track, band leader Phil Harris's wife, the movie star Alice Fay, and his guitar player, Frank Remley, and the famous Bastille. As the great Broadway comedian Willie Howard said, Bastille is the word for French prison. They call it that because it's made from the Bastille money can buy. Sorry. Not really. Uh, from the day before St. Patrick's Day in 1952 and CBS, it's the Lucky Strike program starring Jack Benny. Strike program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Hope. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, since Jack has been in television, he wants to keep his weight down. At the moment, he's at his home in Beverly Hills in a steam cabinet trying to reduce. Rochester, I can stand it a little hotter. Turn up the steam, will you? Yes, sir. That's enough. Not too hot. Gee, I'm glad I bought this steam cabinet. How long have I been in here? About ten minutes. I hope you're not taking too much. Well, what do the instructions say? Let's see. I'll read them. Men up to 20 years old stay in cabinet not more than a half hour. A half hour? Men up to 25 years, no more than 20 minutes. 20 minutes, Men up to 30 years of age, no more than 15 minutes. 15. Men up to... Mm, <laughs> what are you mm about? According to this chart, I should have just dipped you in like a tea bag. <laughs> oh, stop. Gee, it's awfully hot in this cabinet. I think I'll get out. I better not open it for a couple of minutes. Why, haven't I had enough? Yeah, but the potatoes aren't done yet. <laughs> oh, darn it. Don't blame me, boss. It was your own idea. As long as we had the heat, you didn't want to waste it. Well... What a time I had talking to you out of holding that leg of lamb on your lap. <laughs> I was just trying to economize, that's all. Anyway, it's too hot. Open it up, will you? I'm getting out. Yes, sir. Phew. Gee, it's good to get out of here. Uh-oh, I'm afraid the heat was on a little too high. Why, am I red? Boss, if you had a pitchfork in your hand, you'd scare me to death. <laughs> well, I feel fine. 
Uh, hand me my robe, Rochester. Yes, sir. I'll get it. Hello? Hello, Jack. Oh, hello, Mary. Jack, the reason I called is that Wednesday I'm giving a little party at my house, and I want to know if you can come. Well, certainly, Mary. Thanks. Who else are you having? Well, I'm going to ask the whole cast of our show. Your producer, your writers, and also your... My my writers? Yes, I thought you might like to have them there. Why? You want to be the life of the party, don't you? <laughs> oh, yes, yes. They are funny looking, you know. Well, i better hang up. I've got a lot of people to call. Bye, Jack. So long, Mary, and thanks. Uh, Rochester, next Wednesday night, Miss Livingston is giving a party, so I won't... Rochester? Rochester! Here I am, boss. Where were you? I heard the postman, so I went to get the mail. Oh. What came? Just some bills circular in your copy of Look Magazine. Oh, let me see it. Hey, Rochester. Rochester, there's a picture of you and me on the cover. On the cover of Look? Let me see it, boss. Yeah! <laughs> what are you laughing at? I'll bet I'm the only man in the world who ever had his picture on the cover of a magazine and couldn't afford to buy it. <laughs> oh, you do all right. I don't know. I just bought a toothbrush on, into- on installment plan. <laughs> installment? What would that mean? <laughs> Well, that's not my fault. If you saved your... Rochester, see who that is while I finish getting dressed. Yes, sir. Sure and be guard, it's a pleasure to greet such a fine broth of a lad on this day, the likes of which I haven't seen in years. How do you do? How do you do? (laughs) Who is it, Rochester? It ain't Mr. Kitzel. Well, who is it? Sure, it's the son of the old side himself, Dennis Patrick Aloysius Jeremiah McNulty or Day. <laughs> oh, come on in, Dennis. And look, kid, tomorrow is St. Patrick's Day. Aren't you a little early with your brogue? No, I'm practicing. I'll have to talk like this all day tomorrow. You have to talk like that all day? Yeah. If you don't, they rip off your shamrock, take a shillelagh, and break all your Morton Downey records. <laughs> Oh, well, you know, Dennis, I've always thought that St. Patrick's Day comes at the wrong time of the year. Yeah, what do you mean? Well, how can March 17th be dedicated to the wearing of the green when only two days before the government takes it all away from you? (laughs) Now, Dennis, let's stop talking. Just let me hear the song you're going to do on the program. Yes, sir. Hold it, kid. Hello? Hello, Jack. This is Mary again. Oh, what is it, Mary? Well, I called Dennis's house to invite him to my party, and his mother told me he's at your house. Is he there? Yes. Dennis, Mary wants you on the phone. Yeah, these dames, they won't let me alone. <laughs> Never mind. Just talk to her. Yes, sir. Hello, Mary. Hello, Dennis. Look, I'm having a party on Wednesday night. Would you like to come? On Wednesday? Yes. Uh, do you mind if I bring my neighbor, Hetty Lamar? Your neighbor, Hetty Lamar? Yeah. Dennis, I happen to know Hetty Lamar lives in Benedict Canyon, and you live in Westwood. Oh, yeah. Hetty Lamar's house is right next to mine. Since when? Ever since the rain. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Dennis. Bring anyone who floats by. Gee, thanks, Mary. Goodbye. Bye. Well, say, Mr. Benny, when I go to Mary's party, I'm going to bring... Hello? Dennis, I forgot to tell you something. What? Don't drive Jack nuts. Just sing your song. Okay. Dennis. Quiet, I'm going to sing. Oh, oh, well, go right ahead.
followed me across the sea. Then tell me, please, how are things in Glockamora? Is that little brook still leaping there? Does it still run down to Johnny Cole through Killy Bay? Kilcarry and Kildare How are things in Glockamora? Is that willow tree still weeping there? Does that lassie with a twinkling eye Come smiling by? See me there. So I asked each weeping willow and each brook along the way, and each last that comes a sign to certainly picked an appropriate song for St. Patrick's Day. And I might add, Dennis, that as time goes on, your voice gets better and better. Well, if it's so good, how about a raise? <laughs> you know, Dennis, on second thought, instead of singing Glockamore on the program, why don't you sing the song I wrote? When you say I beg your pardon, then I'll come back to you. may not sell any copies, but it sure gets rid of pests. <laughs> oh, Rochester. Rochester. Yes, boss? I'm awfully hungry. What does my diet say I can have for lunch? A piece of rye crisp and a hard-boiled egg. That's all I'm supposed to eat for lunch? No, you just feel it for lunch. You eat it for dinner. <laughs> oh, for heaven's sakes. That's the strictest diet I have. Come in. Oh, hello, Phil. Hello, Jackson. What's the matter, Phil? You sound depressed. Yeah, I am. I just came back from the doctor. The doctor? What's wrong? Well, a couple of weeks ago, I became allergic to something, and I broke out in a rash on my back. It's just something awful. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, so I went to the doctor, and every day he's been testing me to find out what I'm allergic to, and 
today found out. <laughs> well, what are you allergic to? Alcohol. <laughs> no. Yeah, only way I can get rid of this itch is to stop drinking entirely. Oh. Well, what are you going to do? Grow long fingernails. I'm in for a lot of scratches. <laughs> That's what I thought. Hey, by the way, Jackson, I've been meaning to tell you I saw you on TV last week. And, man, you look wonderful. Well, thanks, Phil, but I don't deserve all the credit. I had the best makeup man in the country. Oh, really? Yes, he's the same one who made up President Truman for his last television speech. <laughs> yeah, hold it a minute. Why would President Truman want to use makeup? Phil, if you were asking for $8 billion, you'd want to look good, too. <laughs> Believe me. Uh, Alice would give it to me regardless of how I look. Well, she can probably... Hmm. Hello? Oh, it's me again, Jack. Oh, what is it now, Mary? Well, I called Phil's house and nobody answered, and I was wondering if he's over there. Yes, he is. Just a second. Phil, it's for you. It's Mary. Oh. Hello, Livy, you doll, you. Hello, Hambone. <laughs> Look, Phil, I'm having a party on Wednesday, and I'd like you and Alice to come. Yeah, okay, Liv, we'll be there. Hey, say, uh, uh, you want me to bring my orchestra boys along, too? Uh, no, no, Phil, I haven't got room for 36 more people. What do you mean, 36? I only got 18 fellas in my band. Yeah, what about their parole officers? <laughs> oh, yeah, I almost forgot about them cats. Uh, uh, look, Mary, uh, uh, Mary, can I at least bring Remley? No. Sammy, my drummer? No. Now, wait a minute. I've got to bring at least one of my boys. Why? Somebody's got to scratch my back. <laughs> Phil, I don't know what you're talking about, but if your back itches, can't you scratch it yourself? No, I'll be using both hands to pour the stuff that makes it itch. <laughs> Phil, I don't understand. Anyway, will you come to my party? Natch, I'll be there, Liv. Thanks. Okay, bye. Mary, uh, Mary invites you to the party, too, eh, Phil? Yeah. Your lunch is ready, Mr. Benny. Oh, thanks, Rochester. Hey, Jackson, I'm kind of hungry. I think I'll stay and have some lunch with you. Oh, Oh, you want to eat here, huh? When you say I beg your pardon. <laughs> it works every time. I got the song right that time. <laughs> when you say I beg your pardon. Gee, I mustn't forget my own melody. Uh, what about my lunch, Rochester? Shall I bring it in here or will you feel it in the dining room? <laughs> Look, Rochester, I'm not going to stick to that silly diet. I want something to eat and I'm not going to worry. If... Come in. Oh, hello, Don. Hello, Jack. Come on in, fellas. Hmm. Well, Don, since you brought the sportsman with you, I suppose you want to hear the want me to hear the commercial they're going to do. Eh? Oh yes, Jack, and you'll be proud of this one. We stayed up all night and really came up with something sensational. Well, good, good. But Don, I had a number I wanted the boys to do a commercial on. You know that new song called uh, "Cry." Cry? While they're singing, "Be happy, go lucky." I ought to slap your face. <laughs> 
Oh, well, Don, uh, what's the song you have prepared? Well, since tomorrow's St. Patrick's Day, we're going to do a medley of Irish songs. Oh, that's fine. Who gave you the idea? Dennis. Okay, <laughs> let's hear it, boys. I'd like you and the sportsman to make a commercial out of the song I wrote. When you say I beg your... <laughs> How do you like that? They all got out at once. Oh, well. Gosh, I'm hungry. These diets are murder. I'm going to eat something. Oh, Rochester. Rochester, come here a minute, will you? Yes, boss. Look, Rochester, I'm really hungry. What's in the refrigerator? Dennis Day. <laughs> What? When he left, he opened the wrong door. <laughs> oh, well, leave him there for a while. I don't want to hear his explanation of how it happened. Anyway, Rochester, just make me a sandwich out of, uh... Boss, out why are you staring the... out the window? What? Why are you staring out the window? Those two men. Those two men across the street. They just stepped off the curb, and they're coming this way. Yes? We're from the income tax department. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, you're the same men who were here last year. Uh, come in. Your name is, uh, is Mr. Kearns, isn't it? Yes, and this is my assistant, Mr. Wright. Wright? How do you do? <laughs> Gentlemen, if you've come about my income tax, I've already sent it in. You know. oh, Mr. Benny, we're not here to discuss this year's taxes. We'd like to talk to you again about last year's. 
Last year's? I thought that was settled. We went over it so many times. Then when I didn't hear from you again, I... I assumed that nothing was wrong. I thought that everything was right. How do you do? <laughs> hmm. Mr. Benny, we're still trying to help you. Help me? And we feel that you must have made a mistake in your last year's return. A mistake? Yes. We can't understand how a man who earned over $300,000 could only spend $17 for entertainment. Well, that's all I spent. I can prove it to you. Rochester, get my books out of my desk drawer, will you? Yes, sir. Well, there's no need. I'm going to prove it to you for once and for all. But, Mr. Benny. This drawer here on the left? No, the right. How do you do? <laughs> now, cut that out. For heaven's sake. <laughs> Mr. Benny. No one shouts at a tax collector. <laughs> oh, I'm... I'm sorry. Mr. Benny, believe me, we're here to help you. I know, I know. <laughs> yes, we don't think you're taking full advantage of deductible items. I'm not? Here are your books, boss. Thanks. I'll take your butler, for instance. You mean Rochester? Yes. Even though he's your butler, if he assists you in any way pertaining to the production of your radio or television shows or any of your other business activities, then that portion of his pay is deductible. You mean... Uh... Yes. In other words, under those conditions, you could split his salary. Split my salary? <laughs> yes. Gentlemen, they've split infinities and they've split the atom. But I defy anybody to split my salary. <laughs> Rochester, this is no time... Uh, just a moment, Mr. Benny. Rochester, are you inferring that your salary is that small? Well, in Santa Anita colloquialism, it starts off pretty good, but something always happens to it coming around the far turn. Uh, what do you mean? Well, every payday, Mr. Benny sits me down and explains how he has to make certain deductions out of my salary. So much for withholding, so much for unemployment insurance, and so much for Social Security. Then he further explains that what remains is known as take-home pay. That's right. Take-home pay. Then he points out that I'm living at his home, so he takes it. <laughs> hmm. Mr. Benny, is that right? How do you do? I can play that game, too, brother. Uh, Mr. Benny, I just looked in the book that Rochester brought you, and uh, there's an item that interests me. Uh, which item is that? Uh, this one here. Income from violin engagement, approximately $3. <laughs> yes, I filled in that entry myself. But why is it approximately $3? Well, I was playing my violin at the opening of a butcher shop, and they gave me two pounds of meat. They gave you two pounds of meat for playing your violin? They didn't give it to him. Somebody hit him with a round stick. <laughs> well, I brought it home. What's the difference? Uh, that brings up a point, Mr. Benny. If you receive revenue playing your violin, then the money you spend on his upkeep and repair is deductible. It is? Yes. You see, Mr. Benny, we're trying to help you. I know, I know. <laughs> for instance, Mr. Benny, how many strings do you buy for your violin? Rosin, pegs, bridges, repairing your bow, and so forth. 
Well, I don't know. You see, I get everything through my violin teacher. He keeps track of all that. Well, in that case, in order to help you, uh, would you mind if we talk to your violin teacher? No, no, not at all. His name is Professor LeBlanc. His uh, address is 6212 Iman Avenue. It's on the other side of town. We'll find it. Come on, Joe. Well, Bill, there it is. 6212 Iman Avenue. Yeah, what a run-down-looking Roman house. Let's go in. Oh, here's his room. Professor LeBlanc, violin teacher. Yeah. Professor LeBlanc? We? We're from the income tax department. Income tax? Income tax! Gentlemen, look at me. See for yourself. I am barefoot. My clothes are torn. Professor. I sleep on a hard spring. I ate the mattress. <laughs> In contact. Professor. Professor. Control yourself. Uh, yes, we're here to talk to you about one of your pupils, uh, Mr. Benny. Ah, uh, about Mr. Benny? Come in, come in. Perhaps I can help you send him to the Bastille. <laughs> No, 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 Professor. We just want to find out how much money Mr. Benny spent on his violin. Money? <laughs> yes. Don't you have any books? Uh oh, we. Oui. I have written three books about Monsieur Benny, but the publishers would not believe them. No, no, we mean records, financial records. We want to know what, uh, uh, what expenses Mr. Benny's incurred in the upkeep of his violin. Oh, that I do not know. I just charge him so much for the lesson, and that includes everything. Oh, well, perhaps we could break that down. Uh, how much do you charge him for the lesson? Well, he is supposed to give me two dollars. But before every lesson, Monsieur Benny sits me down and explains how he has to make certain deductions out of my salary. <laughs> so much for withholding, so much for unemployment insurance, and so much for social security. Then he further explains that what remains is known as take home... Uh, come on, Bill. We've heard this before. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Professor LeBlanc. Uh, you're welcome, gentlemen. Oh, uh, by the way, Professor, we've never heard Mr. Benny play the violin. How does he sound? Sound? Well, gentlemen, let me explain. The strings on a violin are made of cat gut, and the violin bow is made from horse hair. Mm-hmm. So, if you want to know how Mr. Benny violin playing sounds, think of a cat being stepped on by a horse. <laughs> yes, we understand. Well, goodbye, Professor LeBlanc. Goodbye, gentlemen. Say, Bill. Yes, Joe? Why are we going to all this trouble just to help Mr. Benny? I don't know. There's something about those big blue eyes that gets you. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Good night, everybody. The Jack Benny program is brought to you by Lucky Strike, talk to the American Tobacco Company. The Lucky Strike Program starring Jack Benny.
from the day between Tax Day and St. Patrick's Day, March 16, 1952, and from the big broadcast. By the way, our friends at the Metropolitan Washington Old Time Radio Club are planning a program called Jack Benny and the IRS, featuring three of the Masters broadcasts, hosted by our friend and OTR authority, John Abbott. It's a virtual program on March 11th, but all of the club's programs are available on YouTube. For the details, go to mwotrc.com. That's mwotrc, the Metropolitan Washington Old Time Radio Club. I'm Murray Horwitz. Our co-producer is Jill Errold Bailey. The audio engineers are Mike Kidd and Kenny Pirog. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. This Women's History Month, it's especially important to feature women who have made history and who lead the fields of human endeavor. So, pop quiz, quick, who's the best-selling author of all time? If you answered with a man's name, go to the back of the class. First, second, and third places, according to most sources, are occupied by women. Danielle Steele at number three, Barbara Cartland in second, and in first place, Agatha Christie, who has sold literally billions of books worldwide. Though never out of fashion, Ms. Christie's undergone something of a resurgence in the past few years, with two feature film remakes directed by a current Oscar nominee, Sir Kenneth Branagh, Murder on the Orient Express in 2017, and this year's Death on the Nile. As you can imagine, Dame Agatha's works were adapted quite a few times for radio, not only in the United Kingdom, but here in the U.S. We're about to hear one of those adaptations, courtesy of the always well-done series, Suspense. It stars Lily Palmer, the German-British actor who had arrived in Hollywood in late 1945, accompanying her then-husband, the actor Rex Harrison. He was signed to star in the movie Anna and the King of Siam. It appeared in 1946, and you'll hear Ms. Palmer refer to it at the end of this program. Alongside Ms. Palmer in the cast is the redoubtable Elliot Lewis, billed as Raymond Lewis. He was a suspense favorite, and he'd eventually go on to produce and direct the series. From the day after Christmas in 1946, it's Agatha Christie's Philomel Cottage from Suspense. Suspense! Tonight, Roma Wines bring you Miss Lily Palmer in Philomel Cottage, a suspense play produced, edited, and directed for Roma Wines by William Spear. Suspense. Tonight in our suspense theater, we celebrate the talents of two distinguished ladies. Our play is by Agatha Christie, England's number one suspense specialist, and our heroine is the distinguished continental star who has recently come to join our Hollywood film colony, Miss Lily Palmer. Roma Wines bring you Miss Lily Palmer as Alex Martin, with Raymond E. Lewis as her husband Gerald in Philomel Cottage, a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Philomel Cottage. What's that, Alex? Oh, I was just reading the sign over the gate. 
What does Philomel mean? Why, you little foreigner, we've been here for three weeks and you still don't know. Philomel is another name for the bird that's supposed to sing only for lovers. We've been hearing it every twilight. Nightingale. Of course. <laughs> that sign Philomel Cottage is the main reason I wanted this place for us. Glad you bought it. Oh, Gerald, this was a 50-50 investment and you know it. 50-50. <laughs> a thousand pounds from me and two from you. <laughs> but we did have to have the place, didn't we? Oh, what an utterly hopeless romantic I met. <laughs> well, you can't get out of it now. Oh, Gerald, do you know what day today is? Uh, today, it's the 13th. It's our anniversary, darling. We've known each other exactly a month. No, exactly 30 days. <laughs> oh, Gerald, really now. I... Oh, what, what, what is it, dear? Do you have that pain again? No, no. It's just a little indigestion, oh. I think. Oh, Gerald. Let me help. There. Do you want me to get your... No, no. Well, there, it's 11.35. I'd better get out of the village. Want to get that camera equipment. <laughs> and the human timetable walks through the garden gate. My dear, there's nothing wrong with system, even on a honeymoon. The sooner I go, the sooner I get back. Come on, Gerald, forget your old photography. Why don't you stay and do some gardening? Be good for you. It's better for old George. He gets paid for it. He's not due again until Saturday. The place will go to rack and ruin. Over my dead body. Goodbye, dear. Uh, don't walk too fast, dear. Remember last time... And be careful, darling. Careful? Well, it had just slipped out. Be careful. I was swinging there on the garden gate, smiling out my happiness across a part of England that was as remote and placid as any you'd care to find. I wondered why I said such a ridiculous thing. If this were London, say, that would have... London? And slowly my smile fell away. I knew then that the memory of that last week in London had never really been far from my mind. That and that last talk with Dick on the top deck of the bus crossing Trafalgar Square. I'd never seen him like that before. Gerald Marcel. I tell you, Alex, the man's a perfect stranger to you. You know nothing about him. I know that I love him. Well, how can you know in a week? You've only met him. Well, it doesn't take everyone seven years to find out they're in love with a girl. That's meant for me, isn't it, Alex? It's Alex. no use, Dick. Alex, don't you know what it's been for me not being able to tell you? I couldn't, not with the income I had. And then I decided I couldn't wait any more. I was going to tell you anyway. And you know what happened. Oh, I'm afraid I don't. Yes, you do. That money you inherited. That money from your cousin or uncle or whoever it was. But I don't see what... You didn't think that I could ask you to marry me then, do you? You don't think I could live off your money? I'm sorry, Dick. Believe me, I am, but I... It really doesn't matter now, one way or the other. Doesn't matter, does it? You can let it matter to that mutton chap. That's what he's after. You mark my words, he's after your money. Dick, it might interest you to know that Gerald has money of his own. Far more than I have. And more than I am. Maybe that's the difference. I've had enough of this. I'm getting off at the next stop. Alex, please. All right. But let me tell you something. If you think I'm going to let Gerald cut me out and not do anything about it, you're very much mistaken. I'll catch up with him, do you hear? I'll catch up with him if it's the last thing I do. I'll catch up with him if it's the last thing I do. Oh, it was just a, a heat-of-the-moment outburst of hurt pride. I shook my head and, and shook it away. And then the telephone rang inside the cottage. Now, who could be calling? Couldn't be Gerald. Gerald had hardly had time to get beyond the turn in the road. Except that something had happened to him. If he'd had another attack, maybe maybe one of the villagers was calling to say that he'd... 
Hello? Alex, this is Dick. What? uh, Who did you say? Dick? Well, Alex, what's the matter with your voice? I wouldn't have known it. It's Dick, Dick Winterford. Oh, where are you? Traveler's Arms, that's the right name, isn't it? Around you acquainted with your village pub. You mean you're here? Yes, I'm on holiday doing a bit of fishing. Any objection to my looking up you two good people this afternoon? Oh, no, no. No, you mustn't. Why, Alex? I beg your pardon. Of course I won't bother you. I'm sorry, Dick, but I only meant that we'd be away this afternoon. Won't you come this evening? Thanks very much, but I'll probably be away by then. Depends upon whether a pal of mine turns up or not. Goodbye, Alex, and best of luck. For a long moment, I I stood quite still. Then I walked across the living room, and by the time I reached the side porch, I'd made up my mind. I would say nothing to Gerald about it. I stepped out into the garden and... Oh, why, George! I thought we'd agreed that Saturday was your day here. Oh, well, there'll be a tear over to Squires on Saturday. And I says to myself, I says, Mr. and Mrs. Martin, they won't mind if I come for one for the Wednesday instead of a Saturday. Oh, of course not, George. Uh, and then I thought, too, I might as well see you before you go away, so as to learn your wishes about the box with eggs. Before I go away? Ah, to London tomorrow. Me? Going to London tomorrow? Now, where did you hear that? I met Mr. Martin down at village yesterday. He told me you was both going away to London tomorrow, and it was uncertain when you'd be back again. Oh, well, now, but don't tell me that you and the master are disagreeing already. Hmm? Oh, uh, naturally not, no. The, this trip just slipped my mind, George. Hmm. Yes. Never could understand why anybody wanted to go up to London, though. Like Mr. Ames, what told you this house? He went up there, and to live, mind you. And after fixing up this place like he did, with cats all over everywhere. You're going to take a loss, I says to him, when I seen he put the place up for sale. It's not everyone that'll have your fad for washing themselves in every room in the house like. But Georgie says to me, I'll get every penny at 2,000 pounds for this house. And by gummy did. He got 3,000. 2,000. The sum he was asking was talked of at the time, and a very high figure it was thought to be. No, George, you see, I gave two, and... Well, it, it really was 3,000. Mr. Ames had the cheek to say 3,000 to you. Well, he didn't say it to me. He said it to... My husband. Hmm. Well, I reckon I'll do some spading now. Uh, and the price was 2,000. strolled on across the garden, I was conscious of a thin, vague thought struggling to make itself heard. And then abruptly it was gone. My eye had fallen upon a small, dark green object lying in the furrow beside one of the flower beds. It was Gerald's diary, my husband's pocket diary. I picked it up and opened it. I remember I scanned the entries with some amusement, once again reminded of Gerald's enslavement to time and system. <laughs> on page 21, there was an entry. April 14th, Mary Alex at St. Peter's Church, 2.30. And then I looked at today's date, Wednesday, May 13th. Only one thing was written there in in red pencil. It said, 6 p.m. Huh? Now, what did it mean? What was to happen at 6 p.m.? And I... Something just... Oh, Oh, no. But this is ridiculous. 
What am I afraid of? Gerald is my husband. I love him. I trust him. I... Then I looked again at that cryptic entry. 6 p.m. <laughs> Yes? Yes? There you are. Ah, miss me, darling? Oh, why wouldn't I? It's three o'clock. You've had time to buy out the whole village. Only the camera shop. Now, if I don't have the best equipped dark room, this side of London won't be my fault. If you're not careful, that dark room of yours is going to overflow the whole cellar. Oh, incidentally, here's something you've been watering the flowers with. Hmm? Catch. Oh, my diary. Dropped it in the garden, did I? Mm-hmm. I know all your secrets. <laughs> oh, not guilty. Well, I'm not so sure. What about your assignation at 6 p.m. today? Oh, that. Well, you've caught me at last. It's a rendezvous with a very handsome young woman, quite remarkably like you, in fact. You're evading the issue. Not at all. That's simply a reminder that I want you to help me develop some negatives this evening. At 6 o'clock? Well, I'll be getting dinner. We'll eat a light supper tonight. We might have just a sandwich or two and some coffee out on the porch. Well, before we work on the negatives, you mean? Yes, that'll be pleasant, won't it? You know something, Alex? I've never found anybody yet who could touch your coffee. No, really. And that covers Australia and Canada, too. You and your mysterious past. <laughs> Why do you say that? No reason. I... Oh, Jared, I do wish I knew more about you. Alex, you're serious. Well, I know it's silly. Well, darling, but... I've told you all about me. My boyhood in Sydney, my life in Canada. Oh, I see. You mean love affairs. You women are all alike. Well, but there must have been other women. I don't mean that you're a, you're a bluebeard what? or something, but bluebeard? surely... What, what's your mind on such a subject anyway? You never mentioned it before. Oh, I don't know, Gerard. I, 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 I've been rather upset all day. I, I imagine I can thank old, old George for that. The gardener, you mean? Yes. He had some ridiculous idea. We were going away to London. He said you told Where him so. Where did you so. see him? He came to work today instead of, of Saturday. The old fool. Why, Jerry? Well, he, he is an old fool. I want him. Jerry. Oh, Jerry. Lie down. Lie down here, darling. I'll bring you some water. Some your medicine. Are you all right? Oh, I'm sorry, darling, getting you all upset about... Oh, just because of the stupid old guard. Oh, I... I... I made some weak joke to him about being off to London in the morning. He must have taken it seriously or else he didn't hear properly. <laughs> you straightened him out, I suppose. Oh, hardly. You know what a gossip he is. I didn't want the whole village to think my husband was leaving me in the dark about his plan. Are you all right, dear? You really? You told him we were going there? Naturally. Yes, of course. Sorry you were placed in that kind of a situation, darling. Don't suppose you ran into anybody else today? This far from the world, Gerald? <laughs> it isn't very likely, is it? Well, Gerald... Now, not another word. You aren't yourself now. That's quite plain, and I want you to have a little rest, a little nap. You'll be right as rain by six o'clock. Must you do those photographs tonight? You don't... My dear, when one sets the time to do something, one should stick to it. That's the only way to get through one's work. All right, up with you. Upstairs to your bed now. Very well, dear. I'll be getting things arranged in the dark. <laughs> went upstairs to my room. I told myself there was no basis, no basis whatever for my state of mind. And still the turmoil, the doubt, the odd, unaccountable sense of dread persisted. 
and grew and grew until quite clearly I knew what I must do. Knew I must find some testimony to my husband's past, something to reassure me. And, and, and strangely, I remembered that single locked drawer in Gerald's bureau. I tiptoed to the door at the head of the stairs, opened it, and entered my husband's room. The key. If only I could find the key to that locked drawer. But there was none in sight. The closet, and then his coat pockets, and then... There at my feet. There on the floor. I saw it. I opened the drawer, looked down, a small packet of letters tied with a light blue ribbon. And when I saw the uppermost envelope, my face flushed with shame. They were my own letters, love letters written to Gerald before we were married. There was nothing else in the drawer, just a roll of ancient faded newspaper clippings. My glance at the top clipping, it was from an American paper, featured the trial of one Charles Lemaitre, notorious swindler and bigamist. A skeleton had been found beneath the floor of his house, and most of the women he'd married had never been heard of again. Another of the clippings described Lemaitre's behavior in court, his interest in the cameras of the news photographers, his... Uh, Sensational escape from prison. And another displayed his picture. Long-bearded, scholarly-looking fellow. It reminded me of someone. I glanced at the caption beneath the picture. Modern Bluebeard. Modern Bluebeard. My eyes went back to the picture. And in a flash, I saw the resemblance. I ran through the other clippings. Dates had been found in the man's pocket diary. Dates. It was contended when he'd done away with his victims. He was an amateur photographer. He was from Sydney, from Canada. He was subject to heart attacks. He was... He was... Yeah. The room whirled about me. Dick had tried to warn me. Dick had been near me that morning and I turned him away. I'd... It was then that I noticed a sound. There was a pipe in the corner running up through the room from below near its base. Something was striking at that pipe as, as though someone were... As though someone were digging. Yes. I knew then that Charles Lemaitre was preparing the dark room for the latest one of his victims. Less than an hour from now, all the jigsaw pieces shot into place. The money paid for the house. My money! My money only. The bonds I'd entrusted to his keeping. The... And then suddenly, I heard the quiet. The digging had stopped. Escape from that house at once, before he came out. The clippings, back in the drawer. Don't lock it. Don't lock it. Don't bother. Just, just get away. I rushed to the door, out in the hall, and... Yes, my dear? Oh, you, you... You startled me. I... I... I was just... I was just trying to find you an ale file. Were you, dear? Well, that's nothing to look so guilty about now, is it? Better come on down. Getting late, you know. Gerald, I... Just have time to make the coffee and sandwiches before we do the pictures, that is. Well, I'll be right down, darling, as, as, oh, as soon as... we really mustn't delay, must we? Coming, Alex? Very well, 
Now, that's better. Never mind, Jared. It's... Why, Alex. How cold you are. Cold? Oh, yes. Yes, I am, rather. Well, that will soon pass away, I'm sure. Hurry along, dear. Hurry along. <laughs> yes. Into the kitchen. Alex, what is the matter? Oh, nothing. Nothing. No, no, I'll be all right. The kitchen. Here. Yeah, yes. I'll fix it something in a second. You just sit here in the living room. and Oh, no, no. No, the porch. That'll be more comfortable, won't it? And I'll be right with you. Splendid, Alex. I'll just... Why, no, of course not. What, Gerald? How rotten of me not to have suggested it. Since you're feeling a bit under par, you can probably do with some help. I'll come with you. I knew then that some way, somehow, I must get word to Dick. The possibility that he might be gone by now, I just put out of my mind. No more panic. No more panic. When I carried the coffee out on the porch, I glanced at the clock on the mantel. It was ten minutes till six. A pity you're so abstracted, my dear. Huh? Oh, uh, why do you say that? Because you're missing the loveliest sight you are likely to see again. Look out beyond the garden. The first soft shades of twilight. <laughs> twilight of a Philomel cottage. I say, Alex, you are below par. Oh, oh, what do you mean? Well, it's the first time you've ever slept on the coffee. You must have tossed in the entire canister. Oh, oh I'll, I'll, I'll be more careful after this. Oh, dear. That reminds me. Alex, where are you going? Nothing to get excited about, Gerald. I, I forgot to order things for tomorrow. I'm just going to phone the grocer. The grocer this time of evening? Oh, he generally stays late on Wednesdays. I'll be right back, darling. Well, don't shut the door, Alex. Oh, it keeps the insects out of the living room. Oh, you're not afraid I'm going to make love to the grocer, are you? Operator. Exchange. Operator, get me the traveler's arms. Please hurry. Hello? Traveler's arms. Hello? Mr. Winderfoot, please. Will you? I don't What? You don't know if he's, if he's still there? Oh, well, see, won't you? It's most important. Don't let me disturb you. Oh, darling, you do. I... I hate anyone listening when I telephone. <laughs> but I do, Gerald, truly. You're quite sure you're really calling the grocer? Why, as a matter of fact, I'm not sure. What? What I mean is, I'm afraid I've got the wrong person, a perfect stranger. I don't understand. Someone I know nothing about. You know nothing about? Then why don't you hang up? Here, who's at the end of that wire? Let me see. Hello? Hello? It's dead. Well, all right, my dear. Might as well get started. Oh, we're late now. Late? For the pictures? It's precisely three minutes after six. Oh, why, Gerald, it, it, it won't be six o'clock for eight minutes. Look at the clock there on the mantel. Oh, I don't go by that relic. I go by my own wristwatch. Gerald, listen. Stop pacing and, and listen to me. I, I I don't feel up to it tonight. I, I'm upset and I'm, I'm tired. Alex, I promise you, you won't be a bit tired after it's over. No, I'm not going to wait one minute longer. No, I won't do it. I'm I'm not coming Come with along, you. Come along, Alex, or I'll carry you there. No! No! Well, do you hear? You will. Jared, stop! Stop! I've... I've I've got something to tell you. I've got something to confess. Confess? Yes, yes, to confess. Something something I, I ought to have told you before I've I've had my secret past, too. A former lover, I suppose. Well, in, in, in a way, but something else. You'd call it Yes. I expect you'd call it a crime. A crime? 
You? <laughs> I don't believe it. We'd better sit down now, Gerald. There. Hmm? I told you I'd... I told you I'd never been married before, and that was not entirely true. There was a marriage when I was 22 in Vienna. He... He... he he, he was an, an, an elderly man with a, with a little property. I, Go on. I, in, I induced him to insure his life in my favor. And, and at, at one time, I was a nurse with access to a, a number of poisons. And there's one poison, a, 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 a white powder. It, you know something about poisons, perhaps? No, I know very little about them. How? Well, this one is, is absolutely untraceable. Any doctor would give a, a certificate of heart failure. And, and that... And, and, and... Oh, no. No, I can't. Go on, I want to hear. Well, all right, I I always made this, this his coffee for him, and one evening I put a pinch of this poison in his cup. I remember that evening, how very much like... How very much like this it was, how, how peaceful he... He gasped a little and tried to move from his chair, but couldn't, and presently he died. How much was the insurance money? Uh, oh, about, about 2,000 pounds. I, I, I speculated, though. I, I lost it. I, and it was over two years before I married again. Huh? And, and, and he was a much younger man. Quite well off. He, there was a will in my favor. He liked me to, to make his coffee, too, just as my first husband had done. I make very good coffee. Alex. It was the same along about twilight. Coffee. It was the same as the other. He just sat there in his chair. The coffee. And died. Our village doctor pronounced it heart failure. My husband did have a weak heart, you see. And that helped. It helped a great deal. Alex, listen. That netted me over 4,000 pounds. I didn't speculate with... The coffee. That's why I tasted it that way, you devil. You poisoned me. You poisoned me, I'll kill you. Yes, I poisoned you. And already the poison is working, you see. You can't move from your chair. You're lying. I'll kill you. I'll kill you. Alex! Alex! Alex, Royal! Help! Help! What have they done to you, Alex? Constable, go see what's happening in that room. Roger. I had to tell him the most horrible story. Oh, I couldn't have kept it up any longer. You came just in time, Dick. You understood on the phone, didn't you? Oh, darling, when I heard you say you'd got the wrong person, someone you knew nothing uh, about. Excuse me, sir. What did you find, Constable? A man sitting in a chair, sir. Our trouble, it looks like, and, uh... Yes? Well, sir, he's dead. Your husband, man... You might say, a perfect stranger. He was just sitting in his chair. And presently, he died. Suspense. Presented by Roma Wines, R-O-M-A. Roma, America's favorite wine. And now this is Ken Niles bringing back to our suspense microphone the star of tonight's play, a lovely newcomer whose great acting talent has carried her to overnight Hollywood stardom, 
Miss Lily Pump. Lily, your performance tonight certainly qualifies you as one of Hollywood's reigning queens of suspense. Well, thank you, Ken. But how can I accept another throne? I'm already married to the King of Siam. You're what? Don't you remember? It's my husband who plays the Siamese monarch on the screen. Oh, oh, yes, of course. And for your majesty's entertaining pleasure this New Year's Eve, here's a little present from Roma, America's greatest vendor. A gift basket of Roma California champagne. Did you say a little present? I call Roma champagne a magnificent gift. Next Thursday, same time, you will hear Mr. Mark Stevens as star of Suspense. Produced and directed by William Spear for the Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California. Philomel Cottage, an Agatha Christie episode of Suspense from December 26th, 1946. It came to you from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Earlier tonight, I mentioned the little details we learn from old-time radio, and there's one that I learned when I was looking up the background of our next offering, an episode of The Cavalcade of America. If you'd asked me last month, I'd have told you that the first woman to run for president was Victoria Woodhull. But now it's March, Women's History Month, and I've learned that Ms. Woodhull was only 34 years old during the campaign of 1872 and that she didn't turn 35 until well after Inauguration Day in 1873. So, according to the Constitution, she wasn't a qualified candidate for president. That was not the case in 1884 for Belva Ann Lockwood, the first woman to argue a case before the Supreme Court, and who, as a member of that bar, sponsored Samuel Lowry, the first African-American attorney to do the same. Here's her story, the girl who ran for president, she was 54 at the time, as it appeared on NBC September 22, 1947, as part of the series The Cavalcade of America. Cavalcade of America, starring Virginia Bruce. Tonight, the DuPont Company brings you The Girl Who Ran for President, starring Virginia Bruce on The Cavalcade of America. First, here is Gain Whitman. Good evening. Here's something you should know before you buy rainwear or sportswear. There are two kinds of water repellents, the renewable type and the durable type. Renewable water repellents come out when garments are washed or cleaned and must be replaced. Durable water repellents like DuPont Zelan continue to give weather protection. Zelan protection lasts through many washings or cleanings. Keep your weather eye open for the Zelan tag on rainwear and on sportswear. Zeland Durable Water Repellent is one of the DuPont Company's better things for better living through chemistry. Now, The Girl Who Ran for President, starring Virginia Bruce as Belva Lockwood on The Cavalcade of America. Mrs. Lockwood, we have your application for teacher in the district school. 
Now, as to your qualifications. I was graduated with honors from Genesee College, Master of Arts degree. Uh Uh-huh. You're married, of course. But my husband is an invalid, and I have a daughter. Oh, yes. Well, we merely wish to review the facts. We've decided to employ you beginning this fall. Thank you, sir. You're very kind. But, uh... Yes? Was there something else? Well, may I inquire what the salary will be? The usual for female teachers, $8 a week. Eight? But the men teachers get 20. I know. Then they teach more pupils. Have longer hours. No, not at all. Well, then perhaps their qualifications are greater than mine. No, matter of fact, Mrs. Lockwood, if we were judging from qualifications, you'd receive more than the men. Oh, in other words, I'll get less because I'm a woman. (laughs) Well, madam, it's a man's world, and that's the way of it. From the time of that interview, Belva Lockwood set out to do something about the way of it. It wasn't easy. Her progress was limited, but her ambition increased with the passing years. Now it is several years later, in 1870. Belva's daughter has grown up. Her husband recovered. And in the office of a Washington, D.C. newspaper... Casey! Casey! Yeah, 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 sir. On my tiptoes and at your service. Come on into my office. I have an assignment for you. Union League Hall, 619 F Street, 3rd floor, 8 p.m. Ah, uh, what do I do there? As the most energetic reporter on this paper, that's for you to decide. <laughs> what is it, a church raffle? Uh, Mr. Tacey, if you don't like my assignments, perhaps you have some fine, fresh news of your own. Well, you know, sir, summer in Washington. Yes, I know. That's just when you need a good reporter. And uh, you admit being that, don't you? Certainly do. Well, then you must be able to uncover untold gems of news. Uh, well, of course, there's that wooden sidewalk they're talking about putting along Pennsylvania Avenue. And the fire department bought six new dapple gray. Keep right on. I can see millions rushing to buy the paper. George Pullman has a new sleeping car. Oh, and President Grant is rumored to need a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I give up. I go to 619 F Street, and what do I do? I've only said to you, Tazy, because you have a humorous touch. If there's no news, the least we can provide is a light summer reading. All right, what is it? About two years ago, some silly woman comes to town and starts agitating. Doesn't like the way men run things. Thinks women can do it better. So she gets together six other silly women, and they form the uh, uh, Equal Rights Association of Washington. And that's a news story? Of course it isn't, but they hold meetings every Monday night, and I figured you could have a little fun with them. You know, play it with the ludicrous. <laughs> the 1870 revolt of the Amazon. I see. Here, here's $10. Uh-huh. Union League Hall, 8 p.m. Take a few bums along with you. If uh, there was a little disturbance at the meeting. Uh-huh. What's the old girl's name? Belva Lockwood. Then I'm off. Headline, men insulted by Belva Lockwood. Riot for their rights. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, old boss, when do we throw the cabbage? Just as soon as you fellas have got it all straight. But don't come in all at once, and don't sit together. Hey, look, I don't have nothing to throw. They got cabbages and tomatoes, and Jerry and Duke got dish past the bank, but I ain't got nothing. Get some eggs. What's the signal to let go? Now, remember, we don't go in together, and you don't know me, and you... But then you're a broad-minded gentleman ready to hear all sides of every question. Oh, yeah, yeah. But after all, there's a limit to a gentleman's endurance, ain't there, Jerry? Well, for a dollar, there's a limit to anything. Now, after I make a few remarks at the meeting, then I'll leave in a clerical huff of righteous indignation. That, then, is the signal for you to express your honest masculine opinion. You got it? Got it. Sure, come on, let's go. (laughs) 
president to give a few words of explanation for the benefit of the several new and welcome faces I note here this evening. Mrs. Belva Lockwood, president of the Equal Rights Association of Washington, D.C. Thank you, thank you very much. Six weeks ago, we held our first meeting. Eight persons attended. Steadily, the attendance grew until we had 14. And now I am gratified to see that we have well over 20 and several new gentlemen. This gives us great encouragement for the future. Now, the purpose of our association is very simple and direct. We have dedicated ourselves to the securing of equal rights for all Americans, regardless of race, color, or sex. As a nation, we love to parade our democratic virtues before the world. Yet the majority of our citizens have absolutely no political rights. Women, for example, can't vote. This must be changed. Madam President. You have a question, sir. Is it your contention that woman is man's equal? Doesn't the Bible tell us that woman was created from the rib of man? How then can such a small part of the whole ever equal the whole? <laughs> we do not contend, Is sir. it your aim to destroy the chastity of the home and the sanctity of motherhood? Madam President, if I may correct the gentleman, I would like to say that I am Dr. Lockwood, the husband of Mrs. Belva Lockwood, and that she is a model wife and model mother to our two children. <laughs> then let us get back to a breath so I can hear him squalling. <laughs> belief that a woman has not only her private duties, but her public and democratic duties, and rights. The Constitution says all men are created equal. It says nothing about women. Sir, if you would allow me to explain... I can't stay to listen to this errant nonsense, debasing our men and demoralizing our women. Good night. Madam President, I move... Don't move, old lady. She's cracked. something about last night's meeting? Yes, on the front page. It's nasty and mean. They're laughing at you. I know. That's the way of the world. Well, doesn't it ever make you want to, to give up? No, not at all. I've been at it much too long. Belva, where are you, dear? In here. And I have a husband who considers his wife something more than a housekeeper. I'm going to the office now. All right, dear. Uh, I guess you saw the newspaper. No, not yet. Well... When you read it, just remember that a jeer on page one is better than two polite lines hidden on page five. Darling, can you sit down a minute? Hmm? Huh? Oh, sure, sure. What's the matter? Well, I'd like to say something. Sit down, Lilla. Right. What are you plotting now? After the meeting last night, I lay awake a long time. I couldn't sleep because I was thinking about something. Oh, uh, it didn't worry you, did it? No, because the most wonderful thing about this country is... That when there's an injustice done, it can be legally changed. No tyrant makes our laws. We do. And we can change our laws through Congress. Mm, That takes time, you know, and a knowledge of law. I know it. So if laws can be changed, the person who wants them changed should know how to do it. Mother, what are you thinking about? The law. Belva, is it what I think it is? 
Yes, it is. Well, what? what? What's this all about? I think, Laura, your mother's made up her mind to study law. Is that right, Belva? That's it. I'm going to be a lawyer. That is, if my family approves and will help. <laughs> well, you go right ahead. Of course, Mother. Thank you, darlings. I was sure you'd say that. Mrs. Lockwood, this is the third time I've brought your petition before our faculty, and the third time they flatly refused to allow you to enter the law school. But why, Mr. Wedgwood? Surely you as vice chancellor. I did all I could. They simply won't have a woman. They feel that your presence in classes would uh, distract the young men. Oh, Mr. Wedgwood, I'm 40 years old. And if these young men are so easily distracted, I should think they'd better start getting used to it. I wish there was something I could do. Well, Mr. Wedgwood, if I could find a group of 15 women who wanted to study law, would you work with us privately? Why, I think I would. I must say it's hard to refuse you anything. But you realize that such a course would not entitle you to a diploma. And without a degree, you could not practice law. Let me get the knowledge first. Then I'll find a way to use it. United States versus versus the Kent commentary, chapters 11 13. People versus Dr. Wingroom, the Pomeroy and Constitutional Law. Page 261, Blackstone, chapter 5, book 1. The very being or legal existence of the woman is suspended during marriage. Oh, that's what you think, dear Mr. Blackstone. Dred Scott decision. Dred Scott. Dreadful velvet. Dread, dreadful Scott. Law of incorporeal hereditament. Oh, hereditament. Law against incorporeal women month after month feeding their incorporeal brains out studying incorporeal hereditament. Well, Mrs. Lockwood, feeling a bit haggard after the examination? Oh, I feel as if I were the last gasp of the incorporeal hereditary. Oh, dear. But how are my papers? Of the 15 women who started this class, only you and Miss Hall had the persistency to slave through to the end. My examination. Did I pass? Please, oh, you, you did brilliantly. Oh, thank heaven. Then I'll get my diploma. I can practice law. Uh, sit down, Mrs. Lockwood, uh, please. Thank you, I... What's the matter? Mr. Wedge with that funny look in your eyes. What's wrong? I've just come from pleading your case before the faculty. As I warned you, there will be no diploma. Oh, no. But I did the same work as the men students. Even better than most of them. Look, Mr. Wedgwood, I studied months and months. I, I feel as though I don't wear dresses anymore, but that I'm, I'm bound between the covers of Blackstone. Why can't I have that diploma? I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. The way it is, I'm tired of hearing that same old thing. I studied, I, I passed brilliantly, you said. Now, you must help me, because I, I've got to practice law. Oh, Mrs. Lockwood, if there was something I could do, but I only make out the diplomas. I, I don't sign them. Well, who does? President Grant. Since this is the National University Law School... You must make him sign mine. I? Make the president sign? There must be some way. Oh, my dear Mrs. Lockwood, Don't I... you want me to have that diploma? Of course I do. 
can't we think of something? Well, I can't... Well, it's impossible, but I... Yes? What were you going to say? Oh, dear, dear. This will be irregular, but... If I absentmindedly made out your diploma, and if through some error it was mixed up with the others... A clerical error. Exactly. Now, if the diploma should accidentally get to President Grant, then with all the rush of state affairs, suppose he should scribble off a dozen signatures on the diplomas without looking. Oh, Mr. Wedgwood, that would be wonderful. The Girl Who Ran for President, starring Virginia Bruce as Belva Lockwood on The Cavalcade of America, sponsored by the DuPont Company, maker of better things for better living through chemistry. Belva Lockwood, determined to bring equal rights for women, studies law in order to be more efficient. However, she's informed she cannot have a diploma to practice law because she is a woman. But the diplomas, hers included, get to President Grant's desk. And there... Uh, Mr. President, there's one more thing. What? Oh, no, no, no more for today. I want time for a haircut. Uh, the diplomas for the National Law School, sir, they require your signature. Oh, please, please. They'll, they'll be here tomorrow. It's, uh, it's late. But the messenger's waiting, sir. Oh, all right. Give me my pen. Yes, sir, and the diplomas are all laid out for you. <laughs> do you do you know the difference between a diploma and a constitutional amendment? Well, sir, I... <laughs> well, you can sign a diploma without reading it. <laughs> all right, all right. This is to certify, certify, certify. Albert Baker, Belva Lockwood, uh, Howard Mann. Easy. Get over to Academy Hall. Two thousand women there to hear Belva Lockwood. What's Belva up to now? She's a lawyer now. Drew up the civil service bill. Well, 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 how the world wags. Maybe someday they'll finish the Washington Monument. in the civil service are allowed a maximum of $75 a month. For exactly the same work, men get three times as much. This is the law. But this is the United States. And in the United States, an unjust law can be changed. This law is unjust. This must be changed. The Honorable S.M.R. Nell of Tennessee will introduce the civil service bill we have drawn up. Urge your congressman to support it. Hey, look at this. Hereafter, all clerks and employees in civil service of the United States shall be paid with reference to character and services performed by them. It's a Well, well, how the world changes. Asking to see you. Oh, yes. Mr. Tazy. I'd like to ask a few questions about the future of America's woman lawyers. Go right ahead. But don't distort this interview. I know about libel laws now. Ma'am? Nowadays, Mr. Tazy, I'm somewhat more effective than I was two years ago when you so graciously broke up our meeting. Oh, uh, believe me, I've been mighty sorry for that. <laughs> I'll believe you when I read it in the paper. Now, question, sir? Well, this fight of yours for equal rights, 
Isn't that reaching for the moon? I don't believe in the moon. Each day I reach for a candle, and I get my friends to reach for a candle. They get their friends. Each day another candle. And in that way, before too long, we'll have a light that will darken the moon. I see. The Civil Service Bill was one candle. And the candle I'm reaching for now is the Supreme Court. I put my application in only yesterday. At present, they won't allow women lawyers to practice before that august body. But that will be changed. Mother, look at these headlines. Women get into Supreme Court in spite of judges. Suffragists win first round. First woman admitted to bar in U.S. Supreme Court. Oh, isn't it wonderful your bill went through? And what does our Mr. Tazy have to say? Oh, let see. Oh, here. Mrs. Lockwood stood very straight as she took the solemn oath. Although her hands trembled as she accepted the classic sheepskin, we know that before long the court will resound with her pleas for justice. Glowing as did the Italian Porsche at the bar of Venice. Well, well, how the world does change. No dishpans or cabbages this time. <laughs> Mr. Daisy must have liked my new hat. But you're a woman, Mother. Yes, I know. I've never forgotten it. Oh, I've got to sit down. Surprised, Lura? No, I guess not. Not anymore. But is it really true you're actually nominated for president? Yes, dear. I was. Of the United States? Is there any better presidency to run for? And you're going to run against James G. Blaine and Grover Cleveland? I believe they're the other candidates. <laughs> oh, Mother, you're wonderful. Elva, if you're going to the rally, you'd better leave now. Yes, dear. Oh, uh, by the way, there's a large uh, uh, contraption at the front door delivered to you. Contra... Oh, my tricycle. Your what? Come on, let's look at it. Father, what does she mean? She means she bought a tricycle. Well, what for? Well, if I know your mother, she intends to ride it. On the street? Yes, it would be inconvenient in the house. <clears throat> well, Belva, think you can manage it? Oh, it's beautiful. And it's black. Just what I ordered to go with my new dress. I'll ride it to the rally. But, Mother, you've never tried it. Now you'll get hurt. Oh, nonsense. One gets on like this. Mother. Uh, be careful, dear. Oh, it's very simple. And look, it's got a bell. <laughs> what a grandmother you are. Wait till I tell the children. Oh, you tell my grandchildren. If they're good, I'll give them a ride on the handlebars. <laughs> now take care of yourselves. I'm off for the rally. <laughs> Candidate for the presidency. 
Presidency of the United States, the Equal Rights Party has selected Mrs. Bobo Lockwood. Latest returns from Illinois, Belva Lockwood, 1,008 votes. California, Belva Lockwood, 734. New York cast 1,346 votes for Mrs. Lockwood. Mrs. Lockwood carries entire electoral vote of Indiana. Latest, New York swings the election to Grover Cleveland. of the people to an awareness of injustice. Because I believe that the strength of democracy lies in an enlightened electorate. The chances of my becoming president were nil. I knew that. But because of what has happened to me, the chances of the citizens of this country someday winning all their just rights are tremendous. This may not happen in my lifetime. Yet happen it will. Our government may make errors, but thank God it rests on the great corrective base of a sturdy, freedom-loving people. Men and women. I see. You're really very wonderful, Mrs. Lockwood. And you'll go down in history as the girl who ran for president. Perhaps. But right now I've got to go down Pennsylvania Avenue. <laughs> Can I give you a lift? I have a carriage outside. Oh, no, no, thank you. My tricycle is still good enough. But aren't you afraid of the horse cars? Oh, they'll have to catch me first. Goodbye, Mr. Tazy. Lots of work to be done. Goodbye. Belva Lockwood lived to be 86. In the last year of her life, she was still campaigning. She helped to re-elect Woodrow Wilson. He was the president under whose administration woman suffrage was legalized. It was another dream of another American come true. sense is alert for the sudden whir of a flying partridge. 
Or their dream may be of a silent stand on a big game trail in the vast rimrock country of the West. For these are days when hunting dogs get special care. Ducks and geese trace familiar patterns in the sky. Pheasants glide over the grain fields. Rabbits bounce through thickets. And deer flash through tall timber. Hunting days, when more than 10 million Americans will go out on the land to enjoy the sport of shooting. Love of hunting and of sporting firearms is an American heritage handed down to us by pioneers to whom a gun was friend and protector as well as provider. The Remington Arms Company, an associate of the DuPont Company, began making sporting firearms in 1816. Today, Remington, including its Peters Cartridge Division, is one of the foremost manufacturers of sporting firearms and ammunition. The making of sporting rifles and shotguns and accurate, powerful ammunition calls for products having the precision of a watch, coupled with the strength and power of a locomotive. Remington's manufacturing experience, extending over 130 years, supplemented by the latest developments in scientific and engineering methods, provides fine, dependable sporting arms and ammunition for every purpose, from the hunting of Kansas jackrabbits to Alaskan brown bear. Who wouldn't like to be a crack shot? The name has just as big a thrill for boys today, yes, and girls too, as it had in the days of the pioneers in the great woods. If you would like a copy of the Remington Arms Company's booklet, How to Be a Crack Shot, jam-packed with tips on plain and fancy rifle shooting, just send your name and address to the radio section, DuPont Company, Wilmington, 98, Delaware. called him Jidge. The man who taught him baseball called him George. But to millions of fans, he is known as Babe Ruth. Next Monday night, the week when the umpire shout of play ball issues in another great world series, the DuPont Cavalcade of America will present Brian Donlevy in Big Boy, the heartwarming story of Babe Ruth, baseball's immortal bambino, the sultan of swats, the babe who has never forgotten his best friend, the kid. Carrying 100 of America's priceless historical documents, the Freedom Train's 30,000-mile journey through every state has begun. Leaving Philadelphia, the Freedom Train passed the weekend in Atlantic City and Trenton, New Jersey. Tonight, it is on exhibit in Elizabeth, New Jersey. We'll move on to Patterson tomorrow, and on Thursday, Bill of Rights Day, we'll pull into New York for five days before going on to New England and other Middle Atlantic states. The documents aboard the Freedom Train should be seen by all Americans. 
and should develop an appreciation for the liberties we all enjoy as a free people. So, all aboard, Americans, for your freedom train. The music for the DuPont Cavalcade is composed and conducted by Robert Armbruster. Our play tonight was based on the book The Girl Who Ran for President by Laura Kerr, just published last week by Thomas Nelson and Sons and was adapted for radio by Halstead Wells and Ruth Adams Knight. Virginia Bruce may soon be seen in the Paramount picture Night Has a Thousand Eyes. This is Frank Bingman inviting you to listen next week to Big Boy, starring Brian Donlevy on the Cavalcade of America, brought to you by the DuPont Company of Wilmington, Delaware. A feminist program with a sexist title, The Girl Who Ran for President, from the Cavalcade of America on the last full day of summer in 1947. It brings us almost to the end of this edition of the Big Broadcast. This past Wednesday, March 2nd, marked the centennial of a master musician whose singular sound on the tenor saxophone found its way onto dozens of radio broadcasts and recordings, Eddie Lockjaw Davis. You could almost skip his list of collaborators and just say the Jazz Hall of Fame, Louis Armstrong, Dizzy Gillespie, Coleman Hawkins, Shirley Scott, Benny Carter, and on and on. Mr. Davis, who passed away in 1986, made most of those radio appearances during his more than 20 years as a member of the Count Basie Orchestra. But we wanted to feature him as the leader of his own group. This one included the pianist Horace Parlin, bassist Buddy Catlett, and the drummer Art Taylor. Recorded for Prestige Records in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, May 1st, 1962, it's Eddie Lockjaw Davis's version of Percy Mayfield's bluesy ballad, Please Send Me Someone to Love. For co-producer Jill Arald Bailey and audio engineers Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody.